This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here along with Jeff and Terry. The gang is gathered and Rex Tillerson, Secretary of State, is going to step down. Well, fired, apparently, according to CNN. Maybe. Really? No, I mean... You say maybe. The president hasn't fired anyone. He usually just gets on Twitter and shames them for months on end until finally they quit. Yeah. So is this a quit? Is this a fired? Is it a mutual agreement? You, You don't know. Whatever it is... He's out. He's out, and Tillerson's probably quite relieved. Apparently, Steve Bannon is texting people saying, Globalists, out! Just... You know, yeah. he's another globalist. He's yeah. one of these big oil guys that he's more worried about the rest of the world than the United States. I don't know. Yeah. Seems confusing to well, label and, people that way. Uh, so now who? Mike Pompeo is going to be the secretary of state. Nominating CIA director Pompeo to replace him. Which, uh, it's interesting. Wasn't it the CIA that was, that's one, again, one of the intelligence agencies that was saying yeah. President Trump people were too involved with Russians. Yes, and that Russians were meddling in the election, even though that's still something that President Trump doesn't quite buy into. Man, unbelievable. Well, it's happening. Um, We've talked about Rex Tillerson maybe leaving. In fact, many didn't think he'd make it through January. Right. I mean, to December, through December to January. But he did. He made it, folks. And now he's, uh, you know... He's gone. And so uh, there's been a lot of uh, also tension around the North Korean thing. Yes. Because many people are still thinking President Trump may be walking into a trap there, promising things that before there's any – usually there's pre-agreements, pre-understandings, well, pre the, the president, The president thinks that in the past we have complicated things with experts. Yeah. You got too many people in the room that have – too much knowledge. If you just get in there and deal with the basic facts, we can solve this. Yeah. Well, yeah. And so forget all the experts. In fact, apparently there there really aren't any experts left in the White House that are experts on North Korea. Or someone who they can say, hey, come help us out. They'd be like, eh, you guys are under investigation. I may want to just keep an arm's length here. According to a statement from the White House, POTUS thought it was the right time for the transition with the upcoming North Korea talks and various trade negotiations. POTUS asked Tillerson to step aside on Friday. Huh. Okay. According to sources. So Mike Pompeo will be in. Wow. I mean, this is, this is big news. And Now, the something with Pompeo, when, when they deliver the intelligence brief every morning and give the president his daily, this they, is what's happening in the world. Yeah, like when they deliver it to Kelly, who then Well, no, no, they, they, they go in, I think they act it out. I'm not sure how they do it. Because, I mean, Trump doesn't read it. Oh, I didn't know it was every day still. I thought that some it, days they just... It's like, I, depending on what story you're reading, it might be around 11 o'clock when yeah. executive time ends and then he gets to work. Um but Pompeo comes and delivers it. He's in the room. Usually the director of the CIA doesn't show up for that. There's people that do yeah. that. But he's there. And so he's there talking to the president, and apparently they have a good rapport. Well, in a way, so maybe this, that'll is, work. this may be bad news for the CIA who needs Pompeo at working for them because there was a strange 
relationships with the White House. Well, yeah. And he was supposedly fixing that. The so. CIA, they are the, the deep state. They are undermining the White House at every turn. That's too bad for them because now, yeah. now who's on their side? Um, okay. Wow. Great news, I guess. I mean, not great news, but great new news. That's interesting. Different things happening. Different things happening. Maybe, maybe in the future when we decide that you're going to meet with you know, North Korea, that your Secretary of State won't be in Djibouti. In my what? Djibouti. That's where Secretary Tillerson was when the announcement happened. And he had to, you know, at a press conference go, well, this is about a meeting, not negotiations. We're a long ways away from that. That might have been maybe the final straw where they're like, okay, you're not on board. You know what? There is not a more relieved human on this earth today than Rex Tillerson. (laughs) Don't you think? I mean, he's a big dog. Exxon Mobil, wasn't he? Mm -hmm. I mean, he's big big CEO. Right. And to come in and to just keep smiling as names are being called and assertions are being made. Or, so, you, so you think he's thinking, I didn't even want the job anyway. I think there, oh yeah, I well, think there was a he, point where he, he was like, He was Whoa. questioning it and his wife told him he had the, a duty to his country yeah. or something to do this. And he's like, all right. And then about four months into it, when I wonder if he thought about that when he had to explain to the media that he kind of gets his talking points for the day from Twitter. Yeah. Hmm. Like, I don't know if that's the way this is supposed to work. Yeah. And it's and he's had a hard time, too, because there's undersecretaries under him that are running much of the state. And they're undermining him. And they're not from him. They're and he's from not the allowed House. to fire them. <laughs> yeah, it's a tough it's great. It's a tough gig. But, uh, well, congratulations. And by the way, I think he's done a fine job, Rex Tillerson, for as much as I know. He's also uh, he's a major scouter hmm. was on the board of the scouts. Really? Yeah. Major, major scouter, and because I'm a, not to brag, but because I've got an eagle. So he's been doing I'm his not good pull rank. You, you both have <laughs> eagles, I'm sure, but he's been doing his good turn daily. Yeah, and now he's he's going to clean up camp, make sure he leaves it better than he found it. <laughs> That's what they're going to do. Let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what else should we be paying attention to? Authorities are warning Austin residents to be wary of suspicious packages left outside their home after two explosions in the past two weeks left two people dead. On Monday morning, a 17-year-old boy was killed and a woman in her 40s injured after the teen brought a package into the home. The U.S. Postal Service said the package did not go through their facility, so authorities think it was left on the doorstep by someone. Uh, this out of the Austin American Statesman. On March second, yeah. a thirty-nine-year-old Stephen or Anthony uh, Stefan House was killed when a suspicious package exploded at his home. Authorities are now investigating whether the incidents might be related. Both incidents occurred at similar times: six forty-four in the morning, six fifty-five in the morning, indicating the packages were left on doorsteps overnight. Both are being investigated as homicides. The victims uh, in both incidents were African Americans. Oh. Uh, there's a third person that was injured that was Hispanic. Somebody's dropping off packages and blowing people up. Yeah. At first they're like, is this like the Unabomber? Except it's not being mailed. Someone is walking up to the doorstep, dropping the package off and leaving, and then they take it into their home and then it explodes. Some poor 17-year-old kids thinking, whoa, I wonder what we got. They can't find so far connections with anybody, so they're, they're, I don't know. Oh, wow. And so it's not not going through UPS or FedEx or any of these places, so they're, they're investigating as they're going on here. 
Uh, Representative Adam Schiff, the ranking Democrat in the House Intelligence Committee, is not happy that the Republicans on the panel have ended the investigation into Russian meddling in the 2016 presidential election and any ties to the Trump campaign, saying in a statement that the majority has placed the interest of uh, protecting the president over protecting the country, and the history will judge its actions harshly. On Monday evening, Representative Mike Conway of Texas the commi- said the committee is wrapping up the investigation and will get a report to de- Democrats today. House Democrats agree with uh, intelligence agencies that Russia did meddle in the election, Conway said, but saw no evidence of any collusion. Democrats do not think they're, uh, they've interviewed enough people, including major players like former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, or looked through pertinent paperwork, including bank documents. Schiff said the Russians do have leverage, if they do have leverage over the President of the United States, uh, the majority has simply decided it would rather not know. Yeah. And just end it now they, and move they, on. They did say that there were mistakes made, there was kind of, there were <clears throat> ignorant activities done by the Trump Last night, uh, what House Intelligence uh, Committee member Tom Rooney of Florida said on CNN that the there is evidence that the Russians tried to help and hurt both sides of the election about the House Intelligence investigation. He said we have gone completely off the rails and now we're basically a political forum for people who leak information to drive the day's news. As you alluded to, we have lost all credibility. That was a Republican member of the House Intelligence Committee. Yeah, I mean, that used to be the very kind of neutral committee where because everyone was worried about intelligence, so everyone took it seriously. Yeah. No politics were allowed. Which is the way the Senate Intelligence yeah. Committee is running their investigation, which is ongoing. Yes. But the Republicans in the House side are like, yeah, we're done. And and why would they – how come they're done before the Senate? Well, they're done. They're not looking into Michael Flynn, who is on record yeah. and actually – is in trouble for actually lying about meeting with many Russians and uh, the bunch of bank documents that if they do have leverage on the president, the Russians, it would probably be through his through, bank documents yeah. and through the business dealings he had, but they refused to look at that. Well, we would have known all of that if because we would have seen his taxes. Oh, right. Okay. Oh, wow. So yeah, they're just not going to do it. All right. Interesting. Politics. It's functional. Uh, on the same day that the new Monmouth poll found Democratic candidate Connor Lamb beating Republican nominee Rick Saccone in a special election for the Pres- uh, Pennsylvania 18th Congressional District, the state GOP chairman dismissed the race as being in a Democrat district. Oh. Speaking with Fox News Monday, Val DeGorio said the, uh, reason is, uh, the reason the race is so tight, you have to remember, this is a Democrat district, notwithstanding the fact that the president won by 20 points in 2016. The chairman's claim is... And the Republicans <laughs> gone un... Yeah, so it's counterfactual, as they're saying here. Uh, Representative Tim Murphy was the f- last candidate who had to resign last year amid scandal. He ran unopposed by any Democrat in the last two election cycles. Not only is Tuesday's election for the, the remaining... Uh, so he ran un- unopposed. Trump won this district by 20 points. But the guy's saying, oh, it's Democrat district. He's wow. trying to cover up the fact that... the. Democrat right now is leading in some polls by eight points. This isn't good. Going into today, which is... This isn't good for Republicans. Now, today's election is only for the remaining nine months of Murphy's term. Yeah. Right? Then they have to run again, but this district won't even exist next week. Oh, really? Because in Pennsylvania, they get to redistrict this year because the Supreme Court in Pennsylvania uh, said that it was gerrymandered. Uh, so yeah. make them more even, and this district they're running in will completely be re... Will it, will it then be restructured to be a Democratic 
they think it'll lean more that way because it's been pushed so far Republican. They got to bring it back. So it'll be more favorable the other way at the moment. Yeah. So we'll see where, where it goes. But the interesting number, Republicans have spent around $12 million to support the uh, Republican uh, Saccone. And the Democrats have spent $300,000 nationally. For lamb that Trump calls lamb the sham. Yes. Lamb the sham. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, rhyming. Yeah. The NRA put another almost seven thousand dollars really? an ad buy in for Sacone for today. Really? So they just keep pumping yeah. money into this district. We'll see if it works. Man. Uh, the Baltimore Orioles announced Monday that this season they will offer tickets to their youngest fans at a price even those without an allowance can afford. Really? Zero dollars. <gasps> wow. The cool. majority of uh, the Major League Baseball team unveiled its new Kids Cheer Free initiative, which will offer free admission for up to two children ages nine and under for the with the purchase of a regular price adult upper deck ticket. The program will make tickets available through the program on a month-by-month basis for any game at Camden Yards this season except the opening day. How cool. So the Dodgers the parents could, can the take their kids. Dodgers could never do that. No. Because they, they sell out. out all the time. Yeah. See, but what? Did, I guess Dodgers don't like kids. Yeah, I guess not. They saying? don't like families. The it's, Orioles love the kids, and they or twenty third in attendance last they year. They love filling <laughs> the seats. That it's was the best sad. Part of, What's happening to baseball? The kids be, aren't even being best loved. part of the story. Twenty third in attendance. Ah, oh, they're just trying to get people in the stands so it doesn't look so empty. Okay, great. <laughs> no, you guys are cynics. Uh, finally, authorities in Colorado looking for a man suspected of stealing a snowcat, fitted out to yeah. look like the uh, the General <laughs> Lee it. from the TV show Dukes of Hazard. Really? Yeah, it's kind of orange. Has a zero one on the door. There's no Confederate Does flag. It have a really great horn. Maybe. Who knows? I mean, you can buy those. They're did online. The, did the brothers drive that, or is that the guy that's all dressed in white? Boss Hog. Yeah. No. Sorry, I know all this. Uh, Boss <laughs> Hog. <laughs> Roscoe is, P. He's not the Roscoe him. P. Coltrane. He's not back there. Is Cooter? Uh, no. Cooter there? Enos isn't running around. <laughs> I guess I missed Daisy that show. And, Daisy and Uncle Jesse aren't around either. It's Daisy. out there. Don't watch it. It doesn't hold up. It ruined. I, I watched an episode several years ago, and it's, I can't do this anymore. Yeah, this is. I have so... my childhood images of how awesome it was at that car would jump. Yeah. What about the movie, it. though? The movie was horrible because they tried to make it into a parody instead of just playing uh-huh. it straight. But you can't play it instead straight. Instead of playing it whole... straight. Bo and Luke Duke. <laughs> the whole show was ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, the co-owner, John Brandenburg, says the large treaded snow vehicle was on a trailer outside a restaurant when someone hitched it up and drove away sometime Sunday. He immediately took to social media and received several several responses from people who said they saw a pickup hauling it west on Interstate 70. Brandenburg said the thief covered the snowcat in tarps with the door decal on the side door was still visible. The snowcat was tra- uh, tracked to a garage in Grand Junction area. A SWAT team was deployed, Uh-oh. but the Ooh. suspect managed to get away. Ooh, that's kind of exciting. And they wow. did not recover that the was a big morning. Dukes of Hazard snowcat. Wow. That's kind of, in a way, it's just way too bad. Well, it's like if you have a Dukes of Hazard snowcat and yeah. it's capable of someone just pulling up and hitching it up and leaving, isn't that on you? Yeah. Shouldn't you take some more precaution on some level? I always, um, I always take my keys out of the snowcat and I good. put them under the mat in mm. the car in the snowcat. That's like the second place people look. Then, right. then if I don't, I put them. Sometimes I put them up in the visor. Mm. Actually, then, that's the first place they look. And then if you steal something that can be described as a Dukes of Hazard snowcat, and then you don't cover it up adequately, yeah, that's kind of on you also. Yeah, again, mistakes all around here. Cover I mean, up the snowcat. 
How many times do we have to help these people? Maybe this guy should be dubbed the Snowcat. He got away. Meow. Yeah. He did get away. And that um, call out for the SWAT team. Hey, we found the Snowcat and it looks like the Dukes of Hazard. That's what you're looking for. What? So he'll what are we be doing. I'm, I'm guessing this guy will be dressed in all white with like a cowboy white cowboy hat. Yeah, Could he'll be. actually be sitting in the back of a Cadillac convertible, mm-hmm. white Cadillac convertible. He's got some steer, steer, steer horns, horns on the front of the car. Yeah. <laughs> oh, those are the good old days. E- eating a ham sandwich. He's always eating in the back seat. Did uh, speaking of um, Boss Hog, rough transition. Go ahead. Did you hear about this guy that they they did a brain scan on him, and they found out that he has an, a pocket of air in his brain? Uh-oh. Like, this is a mind-blowing story, a brain-blowing Could story. Could be literally, yeah. 84-year-old man arrived in the emergency room with complaints that were uncommon for a patient his age. He had reported feeling um, unsteady over the past several months, and um, – oh, they weren't uncommon – he was unsteady and he kept falling, which was weird, right? And in the last three days, his left arm and his leg had become a lot weaker. So they're thinking stroke. Sure. The man's having a stroke. He's 84 years old. So they go in. They do a little scan on his old brain. And guess what they found? A pocket of air in his brain? Oh, my heavens. How did you know that? <laughs> they found that he – by the way, he didn't smoke. He didn't do anything like that. He rarely drank and – Blood didn't say anything, but apparently he had a sinus infection that had turned to some tumor, and the tumor was eating away at his brain and actually leaking air into his what? brain. And he has a gaping mass of air, a, a gaping, I don't know what they call it, like a, a hole that's filling up his brain with air. Can anything be done? Yeah. Uh, yeah, they're going to fix the hole. No. Apparently. The story goes on. What? He was going to have surgery. And? But he decided because of health and his age that he was not going to have the surgery. What a horrible way to go, though. So they gave him some uh, medicine to prevent. They, they think he had a stroke at some point, so they gave him some medicine to prevent a secondary stroke. Yeah, get rid- and so he doesn't bleed out because there's... They said the non-surgical approach is not without risk. It's likely the patient will be at greater risk for infection since it remains a passageway for air into his brain cavity. So by breathing, he's could he could be breathing in... Oh, my goodness. Every like time he virus sniffs, infections. every time When he... you got to breathe. But, but they yeah. said so far it's been 12 weeks, he's doing fine. He's reported no, no, he no longer feels weakness on the left side of his body. And he it's feels, called a pneumocephalus. Oh. I wouldn't want to go that way. The x-rays are crazy. There's just this dark mass yeah. of nothing where oh. some brain should be. Like he'll cough. Any coughing mm-hmm. might bring air in. Any sniffing. So this guy's hanging on by a thread. No, he's actually, I think. It sounds like he's thriving. Yeah, he? but I mean, if, if, you, if it's easy for a 34-year-old to get sick, imagine how easy it is. For an 84-year-old to get sick. Yeah. I mean, probably a really bad cold. Oh, yeah. Be, That'll know. be the, I don't want to say it, but then yeah. Don't. So be grateful that uh, your body's working the way it's supposed to. And careful with your sniffles. You could be filling your brain up with air. Unbelievable story. Uh-oh. Again, the, that is the, the deviated septum of the POTUS. Uh, good stuff, folks. So much uh, we're trying to stay ahead of. Again, Rex Tillerson. 
It's been released by the president. Up next, we're going to be talking about idle time at work. Why, uh, why, it's, why it's a problem and what are some things we can be doing about it. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. Do you have much downtime at work? When employees have too much downtime at work and not enough work to do, productivity obviously suffers. A recent study shows that companies in the United States are spending over $100 billion in wages for time that their employees are, uh, are, are basically where they're waiting for work. Uh, where they have this downtime, $100 billion in wages. Joining us from Austin, Texas, is uh, Dr. Andrew Brodsky. He's an assistant professor in the McCombs School of Business from the University of Texas at Austin and the co-author of this study. Andrew, thank you so much for being with us today. Great. Thanks for having me on. So uh, talk to us about um, this uh, the study you've been doing. You talk a lot about idle time, so maybe just define for us what is idle time at work. Sure. So one of the things that a lot of people uh, often get confused about is they think we're talking about time that employees are just wasting or surfing on the Internet on their own. That's not what we're talking about here. When we're talking about idle time, we're talking about time when employees are not able to engage in work for some reason beyond their own. Oh, interesting. They're waiting on customers, uh, their managers inefficiently assigning work. Maybe some machinery broke down, but they literally cannot engage in work no matter what they wanted to do. So it's not it's not laziness. It's not just people sloughing around. It's where they are incapable of getting to their work because of some other impediment. Exactly. And some of that's very rational on the part of organizations. You know, you need to have some extra capacity to handle unexpected tasks. On the other side of that, a lot of that is not planned. You know, managers aren't always efficient about assigning work. Um, sometimes people are waiting around and there's just nothing for them to do. Now, how widespread is this? Yeah, so we conducted a nationally representative survey um, of employees in the U.S. workforce. And we found that 78%, a little over 78% of people noted they experienced idle time at work. Um, and of the total p- people we um, surveyed, over 21% said they experienced idle time every day in their job. Hmm. Well, it's interesting. So, so many of us experience idle time. And uh, I know in um, the write-up on the study, one of the things it showed, too, is that knowing that there's idle time, it then affects how people actually go about doing their work when they are working because they might – they might, you know, throttle their work depending on if how much idle time they might have before or after. Exactly. So the idea behind this is that uh, people generally don't want to be idle. And there's two reasons for this. Uh, one, it can be really boring when you're sitting there for an hour, two hours at a time with nothing to do. And your organization blocks your access to the Internet and you just it's it's exhausting just doing nothing. And the other side of that is more externally where managers will often punish employees who are seen as doing nothing, even if it's not the employee's fault. 
Huh. Uh, so there's these incentives, both internally and externally, to stretch out your work so you're not bored yourself and so you're not punished for your manager for being seen as useless, even if it's their fault. You have nothing to do. Well, you could almost see that uh, if you're looking like you're bored, then they give you other jobs to go do that aren't – that are horrible, <laughs> that nobody wants to do. <laughs> So interesting, a little punitive effect there. But what you've been discovering too, I mean, there's a major down, there's a major effect of this uh, to the dead time. How does it impact the businesses, the employees? What's the overall impact? Yeah, so this is just the first of uh, a number of studies we're looking at doing on the topic. But first, one of the big implications of this is that it's a tremendous amount of expenditure that no one really talks about or realizes. Because, you know, as we mentioned, that employees tend to slow down when they expect idle time. Organizations don't realize how much extra capacity they have. Uh, So there's this big waste of uh, potentially money and resources. And on the other side of that, employees are stuck uh, doing something they don't want to do. As workers, we don't want to sit around generally um, doing absolutely nothing and not being allowed to relax or go home or play on the Internet. Mm. Um, Or kind of having to pretend to do busy work, which is also just as bad as sitting there being stuck doing nothing. Yeah, just pretending. It's funny because I know in a lot of uh, like manufacturing, the 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 new the movement, the relatively new movement um, mm-hmm. is this whole just in time movement where every, yeah. everything is like your inventory. You have just enough for what you need for that day and they just keep restocking it. Uh, on a daily basis instead of having too much or too little. But it's almost like they haven't figured out kind of the just-in-time time management. Yeah. So we're talking about both manufacturing and service sector jobs. But we're, you know, we generally expect this to be less visible is in jobs where it's not as clear when there's this kind of downtime. So you can imagine you have um, a teacher who's stuck staying at work to the end to the end of the day, even if they don't have classes at the end of the day and they've already finished their planning. Or maybe a police officer who's, you know, just has to sit on the side of the road and wait for calls potentially. Or an investment baker who's waiting on information from a customer in order to build a report. The idea here being the time is very really not visible externally, whereas with manufacturing, everyone kind of goes down at the same time. Yeah, and you can. And I mean, I remember being on a Honda, uh, like the Accord manufacturing plant, and they say if this thing stops, if this line stops, it costs us this much money a minute, and mm-hmm. um, and you you know that thing only stops once a day for a minute, not mm-hmm. it doesn't go down. But boy, I didn't think about that. But a school teacher that's done with her planning, done with her last class, but can't leave till this time, nothing else to do, can't surf the internet, then they just sit there. Exactly. Is it demoralizing? Exactly. It's got to be one of the, maybe one of the causes for so much disengagement and people being mm-hmm. unengaged and disengaged at work. Yeah. So in this study, we didn't measure measure engagement, but we did a number of interviews prior to this. And this was a common thread that was coming out. You know, one that might be closer to your industry is journalists. Often they have, you know, one story or two stories to do in the day, but they're often still required to sit at their desk for the rest of the day, even though they finish their story that was due for the day. <laughs> yeah. What's your recommendation? I mean, is it is it better to just let them get on the Internet and leave? What would be a better solution? So we we have a number of solutions that we talked about, um, the most central of which is trying to create um, a workplace where 
everyone feels comfortable being open with how much work they have or how much work they don't have. And they don't feel like they're going to be punished for saying that they don't have work to do. And by punished, I mean potentially fired for being seen as extra capacity, but also that they're necessarily going to be assigned extra work for saying that they're done, mm-hmm. you know, which you mentioned up. The idea being that if people finish early, they're told, hey, you know, you can relax, you can go on the Internet. But on the off chance that something unexpected comes up, we ask that you're available for it, um, as opposed to the other side of it, where if they just are busy the entire time and something unexpected comes up, no one's available. So it's kind of win-win on both sides. Organizations get the extra capacity, but rather than employees having to pretend to be busy or sit there and do nothing, they get some kind of benefit, whether it's relaxing, going home early, et cetera. Hmm. It also seems like a great time for them, I mean, to work on systems, to work on ideas that make them more efficient. I mean, a lot of times – we we talk about how you know it's never safe at work to just pull out a book and start reading a book but mm-hmm. this might be a good time for people to read books or do things or go on and do online training and learn and you know re you know reinforce their skill sets and, and do so without fear of repercussion exactly and the idea is maybe encourage something that is enjoyable for employees but will also benefit the organization maybe in some indirect way as well um, but if there's if the I, if it's created a system where it's going to be if you're done with work we're going to give you something that's really unenjoyable to do, then people aren't going to finish their work quickly for yeah. obvious reasons generally. And am I naive in this? But it seems like uh, this also might be a byproduct of us with kind of an old clock mentality where what mattered most was the hours served, not the product de- developed and delivered. And it mm-hmm. seems like maybe salary workers that their job is just to get certain things done, not necessarily always have to be there a certain amount of time. I mean, I guess in service areas, you need them there a certain amount of time. But in other jobs, you know, maybe once you're done, you're done. And if you're really efficient and getting great numbers, and then we ought to just let you go home. Mm-hmm. There's some really interesting research um, on FaceTime and input bias, uh, some of which came out of Wharton where they actually did an experiment where they had managers rate how good a presentation was. And for half the people, they told, um, they told the manager that, hey, the, you know, this employee spent only a few hours, spent a few hours doing the presentation. And the other half of people were told this employee spent, you know, a lot of hours making the presentation. Uh, but both presentations were identical. Hmm. But the managers who heard the employee spent a long time doing it rated the presentation as better. Really? So the idea here being this is called the input bias. The idea here being that we evaluate, we evaluate often the effort put into something rather than the outcome, which in this case is pretty bad for organizations because you're, you're rewarding the less productive employee who's seen as working longer mm-hmm. rather than the more productive employee who gets the same output. Yeah. Wow. And um, what would you recommend? Again, we're speaking with Andrew Brodsky, who is a professor at the McCombs School of Business from the University of Texas at Austin co-author of a study that we're talking about on idle time at work. Any other recommendations that you'd give the, just the rest of us? If, I, if I'm if i finishing my day early, if I know I have idle time, um, I, I guess just from your experience, I ought to stay busy. I ought to look busy and stretch it out, make it look like I've done nothing but put in time all day. 
I mean, it's unfortunate because this is a situation that needs to be fixed at the management level because they're creating an incentive structure where people where it makes sense just to pretend like you're working or yeah. to stretch out your work. Um, as employees, you know, what you can try and do is figure out maybe volunteering tasks that we often call organizational citizenship behaviors that you actually enjoy in the office and make you uh, look good. So thinking about, okay, well, what's something I enjoy about my work? Maybe it's mentoring. And then figuring out, well, maybe I'll use my free time for that. So it so looks like I'm busy, but it's something that I'm enjoying as yeah. opposed to just stretching out the existing tasks that you have to do. And I guess make sure your boss buys in because if they're the old clock person, um, yeah. then you're just you're, – why aren't you at your desk? I'm just mentoring. <laughs> exactly. Get back to your desk. Isn't it funny how how – again, I think that's what's really neat about your kind of research is – we what really works and what's really happening we're, we're not always working from that paradigm a lot of times we're just working from an old paradigm that you got to be at your desk exactly and we're not saying that employees aren't overworked it's possible to be heavily overworked and have idle time it's just the idea that there are two separate periods yeah you know you could be busy you know 30 hours a week and then you're stuck 10 hours just sitting there doing nothing it's hurry up and wait it is a phrase that I believe is often used in the military. Yeah, hurry up and then wait. And and meanwhile, that is something that organizationally every leader ought to be looking at: is why are we having these gaps of downtime, especially when it's costing us a hundred billion dollars overall? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Interesting stuff, Andrew. Thank you so much. This is, I think, a great insight for all of us. Again, Andrew Brodsky. Assistant Professor in the Macomb School of Business from the University of Texas at Austin, helping us understand our idle time. Up next, we'll do a little Coach's Corner, see if we can't uh, you know, bring some more solutions to you right here on the Matt Townsend Show. I'm ready to go in, Coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back, friends. You know, life is hard anyway, right? And now you, you're sitting there. I loved that discussion from Andrew Brodsky about this, this idle time. Sometimes at work, we, um, it's the idle time is because of us. We're just wasting time. And some of us may have learned how to stretch our work out. And some of us just are waiting for the company to quit getting in the way and making our job easier. Would you rather, as you think about it, would you rather have a really busy full day where you go nonstop or would you rather have a lot of downtime to uh, to do writing, to do thinking, to do, you know, surfing of the web? How do you like to um, to go through your day? And one of the big keys I think uh, I've been noticing with my own time is – um, if I if I'm in a situation where I am idle and don't have anything to do, I've been recently trying to figure out what is my default. What is my default activity if there's nothing else going on? And I'm trying to move it to instead of going to just my favorite uh, my favorite vice, which I won't mention the name, but it rhymes with Betflix. Um, instead of going there and just vegging out with Netflix. What if I just pull out a book? What if I pull out a a podcast like Terry spends all day listening to podcasts and just keeping those running in his head as he's out out and about doing the things he needs to do? What do you do? What is your default? 
And if you're not feeling good about your default, then let's actually change it. Let's work on it. It doesn't – there's no need to sit there and feel guilty because you're at work and you have idle time. There's also no need to feel guilty um, if you're at work and you can be more productive and you're not. Let's just change it and be more productive. We don't need to to try to also um, sandbag it and try to find a way that we look like we're busy and we're acting like we're busy and we're we're really just hiding out. I mean, you've still got many, many years before retirement, right? If you're already sandbagging your way to retirement, you may not think that's a problem. And again, I'm not here to make a moral call on it, but I am here to help you figure out that if you're not passionate about what you're doing or you know, doing it in a way that you really feel good about, you're going to have a really long life. And life's already hard enough. We don't need to make it harder by having our job be something that we have to pretend the entire time. The other thing I'm I'm convinced of is if you are pretending to make it through the day and you are sandbagging it and you're not sure you have the energy to do it, it's it's not like everybody doesn't know that. Think about your organization. Can you tell who in your organization is really inspired and motivated and loves what they do, just loves it? Can you tell who is just basically pushing for the watch, <laughs> the one that that retirement watch that they're going to give you, and uh, eventually, hey, I've only got five more years, then I get my watch. We all know. We all know where you are. You cannot not communicate, as Paul Watzlewick talks about. So if every one of us in our organization um, are trying to to hide out then we probably are losing a lot of engagement in our teams. And we probably might be losing even more than just engagement. We might be losing a little bit of ourself. What would happen to your energy levels if you could somehow bring more passion back into your life, more focus, more excitement? Um, earlier as we were talking with Andrew, one of the things he said is, you know, if you have idle time, remember idle time is time where your organization Because of the systems, the structures, you're waiting for something before you can get back to your work. Um, And if you're in that situation, then maybe go find something you can do in that time that actually energizes you and makes you feel rejuvenated. Something that really, truly feels like recreation or recreation. That, uh, That activity that makes you feel recreated, recommitted to your workplace. And it might be mentoring. It might be learning. Um, I think it's a really powerful idea to see people in the workplace that I actually can see are studying or learning or reading a book or a management book or doing tr- online training. That's um, that's powerful. And I think if we're bosses, if we're managers, we really ought to make sure that we're making that available to people and even create some best practices. We might want to sit down with our team and figure out, hey, what are some really positive things we can be doing during our downtime, our idle time, and make a list of what those things are. And I would seriously make TED Talks, uh, any training online, any type of uh, reading of books, maybe even you break people into teams and have them go teach each other what, you know, different, different things that you can do in the workplace. I mean, I know there's a lot of stuff I don't know about my own job that I I could be learning in downtime moments. So 
Powerful stuff, folks. Uh, it is our life, right? It's our, it's ours. And if you're starting to feel a lot of uh, dread from work, if you're trying to, if you're feeling more exhausted and you don't have any excitement about your job, it simply might be you don't have enough of your passion in it. You're not. There's not enough of you in what you do. And if there's not enough of you in it, then you're going to have to figure out ways to get it in there or you will burn out. You'll uh, you'll just fizzle out someday. So little coach's corner for you. Little advice. Hey, it's just one point of view. We'll continue the journey straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. You know, if you've ever had that uh, that really ugly license picture, a uh, picture on your driver's license, y- you know it, it can be a tough thing. So Terry, um, mm. who loves pictures, a mm-hmm. and loves the DMV, no, not at all, has been doing some research about um, apparently a license, a, a new bill. Yeah, it's in California. Do you like your driver's license no. photograph? I, I don't have my glasses on. Okay, I, which I find weird. Do you, do you smile in yours? Jeff's pulling his out of his wallet at the moment. I, I smile in it. Do Mine you? could be better. Okay. But I can't see. Mine, I'm trying to look at my ID here. Yeah, mine looks exactly like my uh, BYU ID. Let's see that. Well, I'm just, just kind of staring off into- Oh, yeah. See looks the, like a the, mugshot. The soulless being that's standing there in front of the camera like, God, come on. Because, I mean, you stand in line. Yeah. But as I was getting mine uh, taken, there's people combing their hair. They're kind of, you know, fixing the makeup. And I'm like, and I just walk up there, take it. All right, great. Because, I mean, when, yeah. when the cop pulls you over, what are you, are you smiling? Are you happy? No. No. So they need to ID you as being you, so I give them a neutral- <laughs> Kind of no emotion because yeah. that's kind of what just I kind of how you roll. Just give me the ticket so I can move on here. So in California, a bill introduced by a California senator would allow for people to. This is a senator of a state senator, so this isn't like a national. Yeah, right, right. Uh, it would allow people to request that more than one photo be taken when they are posing for their license at the DMV. Oh boy! So you'll see an array, and you go, oh, "I like number two better. I'll, I'll take that one." You know? Yeah. The Senate bill would also allow people to bring in their own photos and request that they be put on their driver's license. No. No. Oh, some glamour shot? Yeah. With a boa and your hair blowing in the wind? I told my wife last night, Matt's going straight to the feathered boa. That's how this will work. If you're going to have a glamour shot, this is... This is going to be seen by every officer that pulls you over. Or the, the family photo. What was that one, Jeff? The one that had, like, the extra face... Oh, yeah. Remember those? Oh, like the, yeah. The, awkward the family. floating head. There you go. The oh, floating head photos. Yeah, those are... You... By, by the way, this is no longer a cop issue either. This is now TSA. Yeah. Every airline, everybody now is going to see this picture. Because they use your DMV photo for yeah. all those sort of ideas. The bill would require the DMV to establish fees for each additional photo that someone might request. Yeah. Plus guidelines for any photos that people might submit. So there's limits. Yeah. You can't well, you can't pose with your new you know gun or something you see. Can sometimes. you have your dog with you? No dogs, probably. Maybe maybe you can't do the thing that people do on Facebook where they they don't have a photo of themselves. It's like scenery. Yeah. Or they post like husband and wife together because they share this account. No, you can't do that. <laughs> None of that. But remember, this is a legal document. So yeah. 
I, all I care about is that the DMV cares that it's a good photo to recognize you. Because this may just be the photo you need to be recognized when they're trying to identify your body, A, eh? yeah. or when they're yep, looking him. for you up in the woods. Yeah. So please, DMV, just but at least on the get other it hand, right. On the other hand, if your photo happens to end up on the evening news, yeah. do you want the photo on your driver's license being mm. the photo that it is that represents you, that everyone goes, hey, wait, I remember that guy. Well, you and know you what, don't look honestly, your best. That, I, I like the idea take Four of them. Take one. Where can I get both of my eyes open? See yeah. here at the ID office, the lady asked, "Would you like me to take another picture?" And I thought, yeah. "Oh, that was nice." And then I thought, "Is she trying to tell me that this is a horrible picture?" Yeah. Wow. Mine just kept saying, "Okay, to the left, look, work it, work it," and they turn fans on and just lots of flash. And then bolts. they told you to cough. Yeah. No. <laughs> turn no. Left. They didn't. No. no. They no, were just like, trying to get a good picture. Act like you're enjoying this. <laughs> The uh, the revenue from the additional photos will go towards a driver's education and training fund, which sounds like something when you get a ticket and you have to go to class. And, yeah, yeah, I think that is. So that. the bill is currently being discussed. Well, okay. I mean, I guess they're bringing it up. That's good. Yeah, I don't know if it's needed. I but. I like the idea that they just. I think the the rule ought to be get it right. Everybody ought to have a picture that at least until, their mama would recognize. Until you're them. the second person in line and someone pulls out their phone and goes, I have this on my phone. How do I get this into your system? And you're no. like, oh, sorry, no, that it's doesn't never work. Gonna work. But just get it right. Let's just, we'll take it here. We'll have a good camera. Get it right. Work it. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you get a good photo at the DMV. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, along with Jerry and Teffy. Jerry? Teff and Jerry. Huh. Mutt and Jeff. Mutton? Teff. Teff and... Jerry, do you have Tourette's right now? Is no. that what's going on? I tried to I tried to reverse the name. I tried to say Terry first, mm. Jeff second. Hmm. This but it just didn't come out right. Well, you know, good try. Yeah, last time I tried that. Hey, got a great show for you today. We're going to teach you uh, how to stay calm in any situation. I was very calm just now when you butchered my name repeatedly. Thanks, Jerry. Hmm. Um, at least I'm not Taffy. <laughs> would you call me Taffy? Taffy. That would be a great – maybe that's your new nickname. So we'll be talking about how to stay calm in any situation. And I'm telling you, there's somebody – I don't know. I, I think um, you may not have heard it. Rex Tillerson is out. Um, here is Donald Trump – President Donald Trump's announcement of his new director. Listen, to this, is, this was his Twitter feed. Mike Pompeo, director of the CIA, will become our new secretary of state. That's his announcement that Rex Tillerson's gone. He will do a fantastic job, exclamation point. Thank you to Rex Tillerson for his service, exclamation point. Gina Haspel will become the new director of the CIA and the first woman so chosen. Congratulations to all. See, now that's bigly, right? Well, Steve Goldstein, undersecretary for public diplomacy at the State Department, says that Rex Tillerson found out that he was fired by that tweet. No. The secretary had every intention of staying because of the critical process made in national security. He will miss 
uh, his colleagues at the Department of State, which left after they fired half of them, the foreign ministers that he has worked with throughout the world, the official added that Tillerson didn't get to speak with the president and doesn't know why he was fired. The secretary did not speak to the president, unaware of the reason. He is grateful for the opportunity, blah, blah, blah. Who was the other guy that found out that he was fired on TV? He was giving a speech somewhere, found out on TV. Scaramucci? No, the FBI director, Comey. Oh, Comey, He was in California, right. and in the back of the room was a TV airing live news, and oh. his face is all over it, and he just kind of figured because, you know, stuff was happening. Yeah, he's in the FBI. And someone, someone took him aside and said, uh, you just got fired. He went, uh, what? <laughs> that's, how, that's how you do it. it when you're running yeah. a huge company, you mm. don't bring the person in and talk to them. You, you fire it. them without ever speaking with them. That's the way you do it. You bring them in. You sit them down. You say, look. It's how deal makers. Thank you for done. serving your country. Thank you for serving me. He has a real aversion to firing people, right? But the thing he's known for is people. saying you're fired. And especially doing it eye to eye and just appreciate. Hey, I appreciate what you've done, Rex. We're going a different direction. Like Thank if you. he doesn't like hmm. Jeff Sessions, just fire him. Don't be all passive aggressive on on Twitter all the you know, just now, do it. Do you remember about five months ago they were saying when he was threatening to fire Tillerson the I think yeah. the second or third time, um he there was this big document or this big article that came out saying certain people like the generals mm-hmm. would all conspire and say, If Tillerson goes, yes. we're all going. They called it a suicide pact. So is Which have, is really harsh. But have still. we initiated a suicide pact? <laughs> no. They're not all just going to walk away. I mean... Even though they're talking about a possible replacement for uh, McMaster's. Yeah. Because he may well, be out, too. Well, by the way, again, uh, it, it just seems like the White House is a revolving door. And one of the things that we, we all were hoping for with a president that wasn't so political but was really just a business guru is that he would know how to supposedly run it as a business. Maybe that's how he was running his business. Oh, sh- no, I think he is running this. How, he- But his business before was a tiny, really small business. And basically ran by his kids. And when they came to Wrong. A, when they came to a point where they needed something decided upon, they'd go to him and he'd yeah. just say, yeah, sure. Well, I, I feel bad for Rex Tillerson going out this way, but I honestly believe he's really happy. <laughs> like, okay, I'm out. Thanks, everybody. I did what I could. God bless America. And then he'll, they'll go put him on five boards and he'll be over, Yeah, you know. He'll go back to oil and he'll be fine. Go back to oil and scouting. The perfect combination. So, uh, okay, interesting stuff. Plus uh, – Do you mean that because scouts are kind of greasy? No, they're not. Okay. Somewhere, they are. Somewhere. You know, they go – Especially after like a week of camping. Oof. Oof. Nobody showers. Yeah, but swimming in the lake doesn't count. You don't need to shower. You just rub dirt on it. You rub dirt on it. Yeah, I know. I think that's for wounds. Got to hose the car out when you get home. It's just, oh, so bad. That's why I could never be a scoutmaster. I would probably leave kids. <laughs> <laughs> I missed one. Oh, and they'd all. I wouldn't let them back in my car. No, you're all filthy. Everybody up on the roof. We're gonna tie you down. Make sure everybody's holding a rope. Here we go. Oh, boy, that's bad parenting. Let's get to the headlines, Terry. What else should we be paying attention to? Police in Austin, Texas, are investigating three package explosions this month that they believe to be related. Officials say they have identified similarities between incidents of the two which were fatal. A Monday morning explosion that killed a teenage boy caused a woman life-threatening injuries was followed just hours later by a second blast, which left a 75-year-old woman in critical condition. On March 2nd, a man was killed when he picked up a package that exploded in a press conference. 
conference. Austin Police Chief Brian Manley said Monday that investigators are treating all three incidents as connected, retroactively upgrading the first incident to be a homicide rather than a suspicious death. Now, now that there's a trend. They're also looking oh, into cow. possibility, is this some sort of racially motivated? It's on a, a side of town that's historically uh, African-American. Oh, no way. Two of, the, two of the three people that were killed are African-American, one's Hispanic. So is there something there? They're just trying to rule things out. Oh, but boy. You have someone dropping packages on people's doorsteps. So now, if you live in Texas, watch out for well, packages. Well, Austin. Austin. Yeah, they don't think it's widespread. They think it's in Austin, but... The other side is it's uh, three packages. You know they're telling people to be cautious, but you know try not to alarm the public. But you know warn them, I guess. Now, this isn't one of those uh, boards, hoverboards. No, they're not all sending hoverboards. No, out no, 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 no. This isn't like a battery that's blowing okay. up. Okay. Hey, I've been that. I've been wanting to get one of those. Are you saying I should not get one? I'd wait. Yes. I'd really? Wait. Just wait. wait a couple more weeks. Hmm. See how this goes. The Republican-led House Intelligence Committee announced Monday that it is ending its probe into collusion between President Trump and Russia, saying they found no evidence of collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russians. The committee's 150-page draft report, which I bet you is a page-turner, oh, bet you yeah. it's full of all kinds of... One- oh, yeah. These governmental reports, oh, they're all... You gotta love, they're but you huge. love reports anyway. No, no, I like someone else to read them and then say, hey, this was in it, but, you know, maybe that's a yeah. fault on my own. I can do the audiobook version for you yeah, if you'd I like. Bet. The report will be delivered to Democrats to review today. They'll come out with their own version. The report will also contradict the intelligence community's consensus that Russia interfered. Interference had a preference toward Trump during the 2016 election. We found that perhaps some bad judgment, inappropriate meetings, inappropriate judgment in taking meetings, and only Tom Clancy would take this series of inadvertent contacts, meetings, or whatever, and weave them into some sort of spy thriller that could go out there. Really? This is Representative Only Mike Tom Conway. Only Tom Clancy would do that. Right. That makes sense. They did go meet in the Seychelles, but it's fine. That's just an yeah, island. Yeah, I mean, come on. I, mean, I, I, I was just reading a comic book where they're, they're having a $40 billion, you know, under under the yeah. table transfer of money. Where'd they go? The Seychelles. But it's maybe funny. Th- maybe that's the point, though, is that they were just ignorant. They, di- they were new they, novices. They didn't know what's going on. Yeah. They didn't know. It's fine. They had meetings. That's different than collusion. They sat down with Russians in Trump Tower. It's fine. Yeah. Collu- it's fine. Collusion would mean they were informed. Yeah. I, I really don't think they could have possibly cooperated. I think the Russians tried really hard. Yeah. I just don't think the Trump people could finish the deal for some reason. Yeah. Any collusion? <laughs> Reporters just yelling that out now. That's how we do press conferences. We couldn't establish the same uh, collu- uh, conclusion that the CIA did, that they specifically wanted to help Trump. The report also co- includes a section on criminal leaks relating to the Trump dossier, but the committee lacked the evidence to make any criminal referrals to the Justice Department. The committee ex- expects the Democrats to either make drastic changes to the report or to issue their own report. So like we had dueling memos before, yeah. we'll have dueling reports that are each 150 pages long and no one actually looks at because they're boring. Yeah. And no conclusion. This is and, and let's just wait now for Mueller's investigation and the Senate's version. Yes. And it might be that the Senate is really the one that's going to come out on top here. Mueller might seem polluted to the Republican members the Congress's version is polluted to the Democratic members, so now it's just up to the Senate. Right. 
We'll see. We'll see what happens. A newly released video from the Department of Defense appears to show U.S. Navy pilots encountering a UFO. Yes, I saw this. ABC News reported Monday that the pilots confronted a mysterious object in 2015 while flying along the East Coast. The 36-second video of the sighting was released to uh, it's called the Stars Academy for the Arts and Science a scientific research and media company. In an op-ed published in the Washington Post Friday, Christopher Mellon, a former deputy assistant secretary for defense for intelligence in uh, the Clinton and George W. Bush administrations, blasted the U.S. government for a lack of research on these incidents. If the origin of these aircraft is a mystery, so is the paralysis of the U.S. government in the face of such evidence. Wow. Last December, the New York Times reported on two declassified videos of alleged UFO encounters. In a statement to ABC News, the DOD confirmed the existence of the now-defunct Advanced Aviation Threat Identification Program, which investigated unidentified flying objects up until 2012. Wow. There's like four people looking at video going, mm, I don't know. Is that, an, is that a flying saucer? What, that what was is. that? What was that? But when you listen to the pilots... Yeah, the videos. They're like, whoa! Yeah, and these are people that fly jets. Yeah, they, they're not. They're not. You they're know, used to surprised easily. Watching the speed of the object is what caused them to, you know, react the way they did. Like, holy cow, that's not something we've built. No. You know. So, should we investigate or just go? Meh, what are you going to uh, do? Yeah. How do you investigate it? You you get two guys in black suits but, to show up. Right. Really? And start investigating. Men in black. Men in black. Maybe a couple of hosts from one of these random history uh, yes. history network shows that are and investigating UFOs. And have one UFOs. of those memory reverser things. Okay. There you go. That's what I we have do. ourselves a commission. The flashy Why? thing, as the Will flashy. Smith called it in the movie. Yeah, the flashy Did thing. Did you flash your thing in me? <laughs> <laughs> Finally, to live your best, happiest life, pack up and head to either California or the Dakotas. Wallet Hub did a uh, survey based on the cities it found are the happiest. Really? So the Golden State claimed four cities in the top ten, North and South Dakota taking a total of three. The site looked at more than 180 cities across three main metrics, emotional and physical well-being, jobs and income, and community and environment. Wow. The top ten cities, along with their happiness ratings on a 100-point uh, scale. What are they? 100 is the maximum happiness. Uh, tops is Fremont, California. Really? Number one for community and environment. How cool. They got a 79 out of 100. Seems kind of low. That's what I'm thinking. To be number one. Yeah, you're the tops and you got the 79.9. So well, the rest 80. of us must be just pathetically low. Bismarck, North Dakota. Really? At 78. Number one in income and employment. Yeah. I'm thinking a lot of fracking. Thank you. You're welcome. San Jose, California. Really? 76. Do you know the way to San Jose? Number one for emotional and physical well-being. There you go. In San Jose. San Jose. No one can afford a house in San Jose. Can't afford to live there. You make a lot of money, but your apartment's really expensive. And you're emotionally good. But yeah, life's good. Apparently. The rest of uh, Pearl City, Hawaii, Plano, Texas, Fargo, North Dakota. By the way, Pearl City, Hawaii. Yeah. Which has recovered from one of the worst events in the history of mm. the United States. Uh, continuing on, Sioux Falls, South Dakota, Irvine, California, Huntington Beach, and Grand oh, I Prairie. I love Huntington Beach. Grand Irvine Prairie. is great, and Huntington Beach is great, but again, money, money, money. Yeah. So apparently, 
But th- this is actually interesting because it's California, a lot of the beach areas, it sounds like. Yep. And um, north, south, north and south north Dakota. North and south Dakota. So it, right. it doesn't matter if you're inland with fracking abilities or on the coast with you know, So basically, spills. money equals happiness. Does it? Oh, wow. I that's what that, we just heard. That's the conclusion. Is that, is that the end result there, Matt? Do Huntington you see that? Beach, San Jose, Irvine, California. San Jose, by the way. I mean, that's mm. this is amazing. Mm. There's some good, yeah, there's some great, I mean, but, I, in fact, I've been to three of those in the last year. But wouldn't you think maybe on a scale of 100 to get to your happiest cities at 80%? Yeah, something instead of a hundred percent. I mean, it, maybe it's kind of a, maybe the, the scale. Maybe the problem with this study is that the scale's a little off. Hmm. I think that we wouldn't be hitting at eighty percent. We, the best cities you'd think would be like in the nineties. Okay, I mean, if you're going old school, or, or or are they holding on to the integrity of the scale? And this is showing that eighty percent. Maybe there's some some things to work on. Yeah, to make your city happier. I don't know. This is why I. Hated statistics. Or do you question Wallet Hub and everything they do? Because yes. they're the ones that did the study. Yeah. Oh, the monkey survey monkey didn't do it? No, no, no. Those are only for like political polls. I, uh, but I see. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I got a question for you because I know we talk about it all the time on the show. Mm. How much exercise does one really need? Hmm. Uh, I saw a place opening around. Close to my house that yeah. uh, says 15 minutes once a week. What? Really? That's it? That's what they said. Well, I don't at really their believe place. it. Yeah, go to their place. Because they'll do, do mega, yeah. Their workout 15 minutes once a week. That's like the electroshock therapy, though, that they put on your abs. Mm. Yeah. Here's basically uh, the article um, is How Much Exercise Do I Really Need by Beth Squarecki from Vitals. Hmm. Uh, it's a life hacker organization from yes. Life Hacker. Um, but uh, zero is obviously not enough. If you're preparing for a marathon, you're probably doing too much mm. exercise. Mm-hmm. So somewhere in between, there's this happy medium. Fortunately, all the major public health organizations are in agreement. The World Health Organization. Who? Who? The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the American Heart Association are all on board with the following guidelines for aerobic exercise. Four to five times a week. Wait a minute. You just said we need to do between zero and preparing for a marathon? That's still too much. 150 minutes per week of moderate intensity exercise like walking. So 30 minutes a day. Ideally broken up to 30 minutes per day over five days. Yeah. Hmm. 75 minutes per week of vigorous exercise like running, ideally in uh, three 25-minute chunks. Hmm. It only counts if you do 10 minutes or more in each session, and you should spread your sessions throughout the week so you can't take a single 90-minute spinning class and figure you're done. Mm. So you need five moderate-intensity workouts. Is that right? Or three 25-minute vigorous workouts. Hmm. The thing that you said that I like the most is the resting period. Yeah. In between the you know rigorous exercise. And I don't think you need to do both, do you? In fact, I try to just focus on the resting portion of that. Mm. Yeah. That's yeah. maybe the problem. <laughs> don't, don't they want, want you to, fo- you. to focus on the moderate to heavy, not heavy, but moderate exercise, right? Yeah. So you, it sounds like really what you need is the mix of both. You need, you need some... Some sort of cross-training of well, some you kind? Well, need, you, need you need to get the heart really pumping 
Hmm. For about 75 minutes a week. Now, what if I'm resting hmm. while I'm watching somebody else do rigorous exercise? No, Ooh, you know point. what? Let me, let me do it that's for a mix, you. That's I'm going a mix to of give both. You, if you would just walk more like, like I used to back in the day. And then you remember how you – when you go home and you sit in your lazy boy and then you think, hey, I want nachos. Mm. And then you remember how your wife brings you a plate of nachos and then she keeps it just out of your grasp and you fight <laughs> to get that plate of nachos and your heart rate starts racing for a couple minutes? You need to do that 75 times a week. See, the fallacy, fallacy of that hypothetical, uh, my wife cannot stomach nachos. In fact, uh. when I pull out the nacho fixings, she just – Audibly starts to gag. Does she really? Or she'll leave the room. Oh, I feel Because I think the jalapenos make her cry. You call it the fixings. She's like, the fixings. He's it's doing really, it again. It's just really the not the jar of cheese and the jalapenos. No, this one came in a can. Okay. So mm. just know that feeling where your heart's beating inside of your chest and you can actually feel it happening, you need to do that 75 times a week. So that's not a heart attack. No. Plus another you know, 150 minutes or so. You know, I do the step bet. I get my steps in every day. How many steps are you taking a day now? Uh, between 7,300 and 9,300. I really just go for the bare minimum. So, hmm. Well, 9,300 steps is a good day, really, right? Yeah. I only have to do two of those days a week. I mean, you're not. Those are called stretch days. He's just kind of like meandering. I wouldn't even call them steps. Yeah. I'd call them like... Shuffles? Shuffles. Yeah. Leg drags. Yeah. So he's not really getting anything out of doing that kind of work. Oh, there will be money out of it if I can finish off this week. We're thinking like physical benefit. Oh, I see. Well, and the other thing, you, you sit in your chair for three straight hours and just keep wiggling your arm, pretending like that's a step. That is not true. So that is those a, aren't real steps. Steps would actually need to involve your leg. That is a patented lie. Really? Patented? Patent pending? It's patent pending, but it's patented. Whatever. Okay. Hey, straight ahead. Stay calm in any situation. We're going to teach you how to manage your emotion, folks. David Lieberman will be joining us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, have you ever been angry? You know, popped off, gone, gone a little, uh, gone a little berserk. Well, if you haven't, then you are lying because everyone has. Anger has held a place in our society since the beginning of time. It tends to control many of us uh, to a greater degree and a powerful and very destructive force um, in some of our, our relationships and the things that we matter that matter most to us. When this uh, when anger creeps in, we lose some of our we lose we lose a little bit of ourself. Then we feel shame. We feel guilt. It's it's an ugly road that we we go down. And who better to help us to talk about it than Dr. David Lieberman, who has a book, Never Get Angry Again. And today he's here to give us some tricks and some tips on how to put anger on the back burner. David Lieberman, thank you for being with us. It is my pleasure. Thank you, Matt. This is uh, this is a big deal, right? People. I've I've just seen in my own life where I'm most disappointed in myself, where I'm most um, frustrated is when I lose it. Yes. 
Yes, I would agree. That's one of the reasons why I wrote the book. As you know, I've written a number of books. Yeah. And I found that, you know, anger is something that certainly is universal. And when we become angry, we just, it ends up, we sort of double down sometimes. We end up feeling guilty. And then we become more angry. We take it out on other people around us. And it is probably one of the most destructive emotions. And the amazing thing in doing the research is that it doesn't take decades and decades and decades in order to get it under control. Anger is something that you can not just win the battle of over time, but you can find yourself much more in control of yourself even after just a couple of hours of practicing the techniques. Now, okay, how do we do this? Because this is the age-old you know, issue, fight and flight, right? Uh, I'm assuming a lot of that chemistry gets involved. And you're saying we, we as humans have the power to reverse that. That's right. That's right. And you raise the exact point, and it goes to the reason why the book has gotten so much attention, is because you can count to 10 all you want. You could punch a pillow. You can visualize. visualize. That's only going to take you so far. If you go to the core of your anger and you understand at the foundation why you're becoming angry and how really anger is just an illusion of control, it sort of unwinds itself. So as you aptly say, is that if you were to see a bear in the forest, you would have that fight-or-flight response. The body would produce a number of chemicals, neurotransmitters, hormones, adrenaline, cortisol, and so on, and you'd sort of ready yourself for battle. When we become angry, it's because we are to some extent in emotional pain or we feel fear, which is a type of pain. And so the body believes that it is in danger. It's vulnerable. It we, emotionally, we feel as if we are threatened. And when you understand that the fact that this person is disrespectful to me, the fact that this person doesn't like me, doesn't make me less, I am not worth less because you can't love me or accept me, it just almost instantly dissolves that anger because the fear that it was predicated on no longer exists. Ah. So how do, um, and I, I guess you see this, I see it with relationships and marriage, but yeah. we see it just in the community with, I just saw it on a chat board with people responding to somebody's video. And so I guess what you're saying is anytime we're feeling this anger, it's because of fear or uh, this, or like um, an emotional pain that we may be having, and it's it's usually not this life-threatening situation, hardly if ever. That's right. That's right. And certainly, we could say that there are justifiable times to become angry. Yeah, right. The problem is, is that if you assume that you may be justified in your anger, you're going to lose perspective in that moment, and you're going to say, this is the time for me to become angry. So if you take it off the table as a response, you may be wrong 1% of the time, but you'd be right 99% of the time, rather than if you say, you know what, if my anger is justified, then I'm going to become angry. Because in that moment, you lose perspective. And that's really what emotional health comes down to. Being sane means that I see reality clearly. And the degree to which my ego blocks perspective, I don't see the situation clearly. I just feel threatened. So if you're able to take your ego out of the way, which is what we show, then you are, there's nothing to injure. There's nothing to get harmed because I realize how you treat me is a reflection of your own self-worth and has zero to do with me. But if I feel in pain because you're disrespectful, you cut me off, you don't like my ideology, my philosophy, then of course I'm going to react with anger. Yeah. No, I just saw this with a client recently, and it's almost like 
we we need to keep the story alive that the other's making me angry or I'm going to have to go in and deal with the fact that I feel insecure about me. That's oh, you just hit on it, and that's exactly what it is. Is that we keep this narrative alive, and rather than acknowledge, and but there's nothing wrong with saying that I'm in a relationship with somebody who I love or who I you know have respect for, who has done something, and I feel pain. That's okay. That's healthy. We're not talking about suppressing it or ignoring it. You've done something to me. Maybe I'm delayed in traffic. Maybe my boss yelled at me, whatever it is. It's okay to acknowledge the pain. But the reality is, if you want to stay in truth, what part of me is really in pain? Is it the real me, my soul, or is it my ego, the fake me? Because the ego only exists to compensate for my own feelings of guilt, inferiority, and shame. It's sort of a facade. But if I realize that it's just my feeling that I'm not being loved and accepted, and it's coming from a place of fear, all the anger simply dissolves. Yeah. No, that's huge. Okay. Now, uh, again, we're speaking with Dr. David uh, Lieberman, who is a nationally recognized leader in the field of human behavior, creator of neurodynamic analysis, which is a revolutionary short-term therapy. He is also a sought-after speaker, a lecturer. He's written many books and is the author of some other books, including Make Peace with Anyone and How to Change Anybody. He lives in New Jersey. Talk to us, David. How do we actually start to... Uh, how do we start to turn it off then? How do, we, how do we start to train ourselves to understand that it's not about them, it's, it's about my fear, it's about my emotional pain? Excellent. So first is, if we want to unwind from the anger, we have to unwind from the fear. And if we understand the basis of fear is my belief that emotionally I'm not going to be accepted or loved, then our homework begins with accepting ourselves. Because the thing, Matt, is, is that the degree to which you accept you, you love you, you respect you, you don't need other people to love, respect you, and accept you. Now, it doesn't mean you don't want it, but if they refuse to do it because of their limitations, you're not going to make it about you. But if you don't accept, as, you know, Carl Jung, the eminent psychologist yeah. once wrote, he said, any aspect of your personality that you don't love, it's going to become hostile to you. Meaning that whatever part of ourselves that we're not willing to accept and acknowledge and own, that whenever you come close to that, that's when my ego is going to engage and I'm going to become sensitive. That's going to lead to fear and anger. But if I fully accept me, I love me unconditionally, doesn't mean that I don't work on myself, doesn't mean I approve everything I do, doesn't mean I don't have my stuff. It does mean that who I am right here, right now is good. I'm a good person. And, if, and I'm, when I'm able to really own that and love me, and we sort of walk people through the process of that very quickly, is that I can see that when you treat me disrespectfully or rudely or something doesn't go my way, that it is a reflection of your own self-worth because at the end of the day, it's how we treat other people. It's based on how we feel about ourselves. Mm. So if you truly love yourself, you can give love. If you don't have it, what do you have to give? But if I'm in my own pain because of my insecurities, I can't see your stuff. I can't see past my own ego. But if I fully accept me and we're in a conversation or disagreement and you're being rude or disrespectful, then I can see your pain. Instantly that gives me empathy and a connection rather than anger. Mm. And then all of a sudden you're more in integrity with yourself. Now now yeah, you're aligned. Exactly. Yeah. 
That's right. That's right. You've got complete authenticity because it's okay to say, you know what, you're treating me disrespectfully. I don't like that. But I also realize, and it's not about fighting against your nature saying, okay, I'm going to take deep breath. That stuff is, is, you know, last, last, last resort. You don't have to do that. If you're not in pain, all you have is complete empathy. And your singular thought is, how much pain must this person be in to treat somebody as wonderful as me like this? Yeah. Wow. Is it... um... I mean, just even because I did go through this recently with a client, and I saw, and they're such good people, and they're really they're, the battle is always it seems like with ourselves. It's our own fears, it's our yeah. own insecurities. Um, how do you? Because it's so much easier for kind of just the natural minded of us and just the egoic of us in when we're in our ego to to put the problem outside of us. It's that is the, how the ego protects itself, right, is by making everyone else the cause of my pain. Sure. That's the ego's favorite mechanism is to blame, not take responsibility. It'll do anything other than accept responsibility because accepting responsibility is painful. It is painful, but pain isn't the problem. Suffering is, yeah. and suffering is the consequence of not accepting responsibility. Right. Yeah, and then, and then it, it just digs you into a deeper hole because That's even right. when you know – even if you got away with blaming someone else for what they did that caused you so much of the pain, you still know subconsciously deep down inside in your soul that it's not them. It's you. You still That's have right. the fear. That's right. That's right. It never goes away unless you go to the root. And again, one of the reasons why the book has gotten so much attention is because it focuses on how to uproot anger. You know, you pull the weeds up from the root. You don't have to keep on spraying every time. So you find yourself no longer with these constant battles. It doesn't mean sometimes things don't irritate you or frustrate you, but you're able to take 90% of life's daily frustrations right off the table. You live in an entirely different world. Do you have... Um, in the book, I mean, it seems like this is almost – it's therapeutic in nature, but you'd almost need to sit with somebody to do this. Or can you really do it in your own head without playing your own head games? Ah, a, a very apt question. Yes, you can. One of the most difficult things, as you rightly point out, is self-awareness because the healthier we are, the more clearly we see reality. In order to see reality clearly, that means I've got to see myself clearly. In other words, if I'm not willing to accept me, I've got to distort the world around me. Because if I'm not the problem, then you're, you, Matt, become the problem. Yeah. So self-awareness is integral, which is why a lot of the book focuses on how to really look in that mirror and be honest with yourself. And to say that it's, it's easy would be inaccurate. To say that it is so liberating and empowering would be true. Because at the core of a lot of our stuff is childhood. Because children, by definition, are egocentric, meaning that how we're treated by our parents or caregivers growing up becomes our identity. Because the child will think to themselves, if my mother treats me this way, my father does this to me, then that must be because of my own self-worth. So we transition into adulthood with this degree of shame, with this dented self-image. And when you're able to liberate yourself from that in hours you can undo decades and decades of stuff that you've been walking around with unnecessarily mm. do you um is there is there ways that we can do this for others uh because if somebody's caught in their story and i'm sitting there 
even, you know, altruistically, lovingly trying to help them see that the fear is really theirs inside of them, all that's going to do is stir their anger more. Is there something I can yeah. do as an individual to help another to to get yeah. out of ego? For sure. You know, I was on the Today Show some time ago. I was speaking about a different book, and a similar question came up. And we're talking about making peace in relationships. And, you know, it was actually uh, King Solomon, the wisest of men, who said that words spoken from the heart are heard from the heart, meaning that if the person knows that you genuinely care about them, they're going to listen to you. And there's a saying in sales, people don't care what you know till they know that you care. So if you have the relationship with that person where they truly honestly know that you love them, you care about them, you're not doing this because you're a pain and annoyed and frustrated, you want them to be better, to be healthier, to be more whole, then you can begin to help them. Hmm. But unless they, which is why, you know, I always encourage people when you want to help everyone, whether it's an addiction, whether it is a nasty habit, whether it's a blind spot in their lives, make sure the relationship is solid because you know there are people in your life, Matt, who you can say anything to, they'll hear it the right way. There are other people you can't say hello to without hearing it the wrong way. Yeah, no, absolutely. Do do you see, um, David, that uh, this can be like, how do we put it? Um, Could this be a driver? Could this be, do you think, a cause of anxiety and depression? That, that, sure. Because, I mean, we, we yeah. always just kind of like to throw this idea that it's a chemical problem, and if we just give chemicals, then we'd fix that. But it seems like, really, this seems like such a deeper root cause of a lot of our anxiety, a lot of our fear, a lot of our depression. It is, certainly. And look, I work with a lot of patients who have anxiety and anger issues, and the two are interwoven because, as we spoke about at the beginning, is that anger is built on the foundation of fear. So if you dissolve the fear, then you dissolve the anger. And when you become angry, it ends up creating sort of physiological domino effect where you become more anxious because the body seeks to uh, reconcile your emotional state and say, wow, I'm really angry. There must be something to become angry about. And physiologically speaking, it increases blood pressure and creates a whole chain of, of uh, uh, physiological and chemical responses. So certainly getting our anger under control. And also when you're able to move through the day knowing that you're not going to be set off by a car that cuts you off. You're not going to fly into a rage or lose half your day because somebody bumped into you into the road. You have such a sense of knowing invincibility and a new sense of calm. And I'm not going to say you're anxiety free, but a lot of the nonsense that you used to worry about, it simply comes right off the table. Mm. So powerful. Um, Again, we're speaking with David Lieberman, who is talking to us right now about his book, Never Get Angry Again. He's the author of many other books. Um, David, when you look at this, too, is – I mean, I guess as we start to get better and better at it, uh, I mean, a lot of times people are like, okay, count to ten – take deep breaths, you know, go take a time out. They've got all these techniques to kind of, I guess, to remove emotion. But is you're saying there's a big difference between removing the physiological chemistry emotion versus the root thought of it that's driving the emotion. That's right. That's right. So let's take a metaphor that we touched on before. Let's say you walk in the forest and you see a bear. Now, your physiological 
uh, response is going to kick in, that fight-or-flight response, and it's going to set up a chain reaction with uh, a, a myriad of neurotransmitters and hormones that are going to put you into that mode to be able to defend yourself. But if I tell you ahead of time and said, Matt, you're going to see something that looks like a bear, but understand, just a little kid, he's dressing up, trust me, nothing to worry about. You're going to see it, and you're going to laugh, right? So, yeah. And it's the same thing here. So if you, you see a bear and you think it's real, then you've got to calm yourself down, take deep breaths, visualize, punch a pillow, do what you can in order to remind yourself that you're safe. But if you already know that you're safe and you see what appears to be a bear, but you know it's not a threat, then you never have to fight against your own nature. So once again, your spouse is disrespectful, your kids don't listen, your boss yells at you, life doesn't go your way, spill your coffee, whatever it is. If you know honestly and own fully it's not a threat, you laugh. Mm. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it is about it's, it's about what you know. And, and I guess the pre-work you do in being able to set yourself in that space w- will prepare you to handle probably any intervention or any moment where you need this intervention. That's right. It could be little things. It could be big things. And the wider your perspective, the healthier you come into the situation, the easier it is to handle. But once you already come in, when we know it's in our own lives, when you're upset about one thing, it's easier to get upset about the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. But when you enter a situation, whether it's a little thing or a big thing, with the widest perspective possible and your ego's out of the way, you're able to deal with it not just so much better and feel better about how you deal with it, but you can be more effective. Because, look, no one ever walked away from a conversation and said, I wish I would have gotten angrier. I would have been able to handle myself so much better. Yeah. You know, it just clouds our ability to think clearly and act responsibly. Now, as we wrap up, what would you say, David, if there's one thing, what is the number one thing we could all do today that would start? I mean, other than, of course, getting the book, Never Get Angry Again, what would be the number one thing we could do today to start, you know, kind of uh, making us more emotionally resilient terrific recognize that we don't run the world and that you can expect that things are not going to go your way so you can either be surprised by it or you can know that you are able to deal with whatever comes your way because here's the equation is that desire minus reality equals pain but if I adjust my expectations, then I know that there are going to be people that are rude today. There are going to be people that are impolite. Things are not going to go my way. And it's okay. It's got nothing to do with me. So the biggest takeaway here is how somebody treats me is a reflection of their self-worth and speaks volumes of their character and their emotional health and has nothing to do with me. Mm, beautiful stuff. Dr. David Lieberman's his name. Again, uh, so many wonderful things we can learn from him. The name of the book is um, Never Get Angry Again, as well as some other books he has, Make Peace with Anyone and How to Change Anybody. He lives in New Jersey. Very basic um, uh, principles, really, but uh, not ones that we, we really like to look at, about fear, about anger, and about our ability to control it. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a little break, come back, do a coach's corner, doing what we we can to help you uh, have healthier, more loving relationships. It's my house, come on! Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back, friends. You know, when we think about our relationships and our anger, our frustration with others, so many times it is, 
it really – I mean most of the time I would even dare say it's not about what we're making it about. There's the smoke and the fire. There's certain things that we make the fight about, what your partner did, what your partner said, how rude that was. But deep down, there's probably something else going on where it, it's actually just – it's vibrating. Their their act, their discouraging, hurtful act really vibrates on something that you're fearful about, that you are worried about deep down, something that you feel like you can't control, something you may not like about yourself. Um, this is why so many times the idea of a partner um, looking at, at something on the internet that that is not part of our value system, looking at pornography might totally rock the core of their other of their partner because that also rocks their insecurity, their own dislike about their own body, their own frustrations, their own fears, their own fear that, you know, this could dissolve the family or that your partner isn't as safe as you thought they were. And that generates fear. And when we have those fears, it's just too easy to then wrap your fear and your insecurity around your partner's mistakes, around your partner's problem. But in the end, um, this is still your problem because this is – I was asking a couple recently. So if we were able to you know, guarantee this problem would never happen again, you could – I could wholeheartedly 100 percent prove to you, show you, and, and validate that your partner will never have this problem ever again. Would this eliminate all of your concerns? And the answer is no. It wouldn't because we – by me fixing one partner's problem or helping them work on their habit or their addiction or their whatever, their rude behavior, it's not going to change the other partner. And it's, I know it's frustrating to know that, well, they're the one that hurt you. They're the one that violated the contract in your marriage. They're the one that made the mistake. How am I – why do I have to pay for their mistake? You don't have to pay for their mistake. You have to pay for your uh, response and your insecurity, your fears that are playing on this mistake and that are that are being that are being impacted by this mistake. This is always about us becoming our best selves, right? This is about us becoming healthier, loving, more caring, more strong, you know, integrated whole people. It's not about my partner becoming that. And almost inevitably, when I see one partner that creates a problem in a marriage, that problem amazingly seems to perfectly be the problem that the other partner needs to fix as well, their insecurity. When I see a couple, a partner that hides money and spends money and has a, let's say, a a gambling habit, I generally will immediately see another partner that has other insecurities about money or, you know, trust in people. And it just becomes like the perfect combination, the perfect storm. And I see that all the time. Whenever I see a spender, I generally see somebody who's a saver that's trying to save in order to control, to to make sure they never have a problem in their life. Whenever I see um, a, a person that generally uh, – wants more touch in the marriage or the relationship, I have another one that might uh, be averse to touch because of a past history. And then those two things play on each other. When I see one that is always drawn to religion, almost inevitably I'll see that they're married to a partner that many times pulls the opposite direction of that. It's human behavior. It's human dynamic. And 
um, instead of trying to blame our partner for all of our problems, what if we could just start to mitigate, eliminate, and become a stronger individual? Now, by the way, it doesn't mean we have to stay with people that are hurting us or making life difficult for us, but then you can go forward and make the decision of how you're going to handle it with your highest self, with your, with your highest sense of integrity intact, instead of just being angry and, you know, a feverish clod, you know? Basic stuff. Anyway, doing what we can to help you uh, get the tools, the information you need to live a healthier, happier life. This is The Matt Townsend Show. It's now time for some empty news with Jeffrey Liam Simpson. When you've cleaned your home or you've made some renovations, what are some of the weirdest things that you've found? Uh, you always find stuff under the fridge. There's always the sock. Yeah. That one sock we were looking for. Yeah, you find stuff under the fridge or you just – you know what I find? I find um, – you always find change. Yeah. But it's like, oh, I forgot I even had that. Like, Oh, yeah. I used to have these magnets I would play with, and mm-hmm. I could not find them for the life of me. Right. And about five years later, we found them. How about a bazooka? Wow. Never found a bazooka. <laughs> I found a piece of bazooka once. There's a couple in Virginia who is doing some renovations. They knocked down a wall, and they found an old bazooka, uh, a bazooka round in the wall of the home. Are you serious? The homeowner said it was in the wall in the back of the garage area. The couple immediately called the fire department and bomb squad. They have lived there about a year and a half. Based on the condition of the or, uh, of the ordinance, the bomb squad seemed uh, or deemed it completely safe. There were no injuries. Wow. Yeah. A bazooka. Now, what's the weirdest thing you've ever found in your lunchbox? Uh, kale. Mm. Are you the parent that sends kale with your kids, or did you send kale? Yeah, I always send kale with my kids because I don't want to eat it. So I'm like, I'll just give it to the kids. And then they come home mad. Yeah, I mean, there is a moment when you're a kid, when you open up that lunchbox or that bag, and you're like, oh... <laughs> I'm definitely not eating this. My wife's trying to kill me. Yeah. Speaking of trying to kill you. Yes. Uh, how about finding a snake in a lunchbox? Not good. Not that there was malicious intent. Yeah. There just happened to be a snake in a lunchbox in Australia. Uh. And believe it or not, and I think you know where this is going, uh, they have already made a movie about this. No way. It's different from all the other Sam Jackson movies, though. Oh. And here's why. Samuel L. Jackson has fought snakes in ten films. This summer, we're taking you back to where it all started. Grade school. Hey, Billy, I've got a chocolate pudding in my lunch today. Want to trade? Hmm. Let's see what Mama packed for me. I got potato chips, egg salad, baby carrots, and what's in this bag? It's a snake! I have had it with these slithery snakes in my Scooby-Doo lunchbox! Samuel L. Jackson in Snakes in a Lunchbox. They messed with the wrong grade schooler. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. 
Welcome back, friends. Hour number three of the program. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side, along with Jeff and Terry, doing what we can to help you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier lives. And today we're going to be talking about healthy, low-fat versus healthy, low-carb diet with Dr. Ron Hager, our health evangelist. Hmm. Yeah, diet. I thought fats and carbs were the same. Mmm. We'll get into it. Tell uh, us more. Carb, sugar, fat, fat. <laughs> Brought to you by your neighborhood weight manager. Hmm. Now, if I eat a fat, I'm not going to get fat, am I? No. It depends how many fats one eats. Hmm. The more fat, the more fat. The more carbs you eat, the more fat you're not going to burn because you're going to burn the carb instead of the fat. So what you're telling me is I should eat lots of carbs. No. I'm confused. Let's talk to Dr. Ron Hager a little bit later. Speaking of fat. Why are uh, you looking at me? Where are you going with this? President Trump is uh, cutting the fat. Hmm. That's kind of rude. It is rude. Uh, Unbeknownst to uh, Secretary of State Tillerson today. Reportedly. Reportedly. President Trump puts out a text, basically this text. uh, Mike Pompeo will be the director of the CIA, or who is the director of the CIA, Mm. will become our new Secretary of State. He will do a fantastic job, exclamation point. Thank you to Rex Tillerson for his service, exclamation point. Gina Haspel will become the new director of the CIA and the first woman so cho- so chosen. Yes. Congratulations to all! Exclamation. See, point. he's breaking ground. He what he broke was uh, probably Rex Tillerson's <laughs> mind because that's how apparently Rex Tillerson found out he no longer had a job. Mm. But there were issues with Rex with the Secretary of State Tillerson and President Trump. A lot of people had known about those things, but Rex he- said he's in. He's in. As we heard in a news report, and we all went, or you and I went, oh, right, right, right. He called the president a moron, yeah. allegedly. Allegedly. He never— mm. he, he backed never, out. Didn't he back out saying, well, though— Well, they asked him, and he said, I, I don't get into these uh, childish games. Uh, I'm on board with the president. Uh, I think he's doing a great job. And it was just like, huh, that yeah. seems like—it almost felt like the hostage video. You're saying what you need to say to <laughs> kind of just get to the end of this. So Yeah. So, um, surprise, surprise, Rex Tillerson is out, Mike Mm. Pompeo is in, and uh, who better to cover all this than Terry South? Since we covered it, I'll move on to something else. No, but any other uh, any other insight you can give us? Not really. That's about it. He does. He didn't know about it. Found out about it on Twitter, like the rest of the planet. And uh, yeah, government. Okay, good. It's efficient. New England residents have been warned to brace for yet another brutal winter storm. Less than two weeks after a previous one, down trees left hundreds of thousands without power. Winter weather advisories or warnings were in effect late Monday for much of the Northeast, including New York, Boston, Portland. Uh, in Portland, Maine. Some areas in Massachusetts and Rhode Island were warned to expect up to 18 inches of snow, while Connecticut was on track to get between 8 and 12 inches. Forecasters say the storm could turn into a bomb cyclone, which we've heard about before. With heavy snow and powerful winds, more than 1,000 flights scheduled for Tuesday have already been canceled in preparation for the storm, most of them coming out of Boston. Boy, that's their third big one. 
it's going to be 70 degrees here tomorrow. <laughs> or I, I, today, maybe. Man. Cool, huh? Yeah. Uh, Rick Saccone, the Republican congressional candidate endorsed by President Trump in Pennsylvania's special election, uh, told a crowd of supporters Monday night that his opponents hate the president, the country, and God. Wow. They're energized for, for hate for our president, Saccone said at a rally the eve of Tuesday's special election for the state's 18th congressional district. Many of them have hatred for our country, and I'll, and also more. My wife and I saw it again today. They have a hatred for God. Wow. He was quoted by NBC as saying this. The remarks, which appear to be his closing argument in the race, came after a new Monmouth poll showed him behind the Democratic rival Connor Lamb, who Trump mocked as Lamb the Sham, while stumping for Saccone over the weekend. Donald Trump Jr., who was on hand Monday night to campaign with Saccone, told audiences that Saccone would help his father's agenda. We need guys like Rick Saccone to be in there fighting with my father. Yeah. It was a resounding endorsement there. That's a great one. And behind the scenes reports are that Donald Trump's like, oh, this guy, Saccone, is a dud. Yeah. But, you know, what are you going to do? And Reports. But, yeah, so it'll be interesting how he spins this if he does happen to lose this election. How the White House spins it because yes. he was backed by the president. This is kind of a – this is just going to maybe tell us the future of this next year. Possibly. The winner of this election will be in for nine months and have to run again in November. Yeah. So immediately they'll turn around and start running for re-election. Oh, fun. <laughs> the U.S. farmers who represent a crucial part of President Donald Trump's base of support are taking advantage of the president's well-known television-watching habits this month to try and send a trade message to the White House. With the TV advertisements that will air on Fox, uh, Fox News's Fox and Friends, Fox Business, and MSNBC's Morning Joe, farmers are launching their first major effort to use the airwaves to sway Trump on his trade policies in the aftermath of his steel and aluminum tariff action. The half-million-dollar ad buy comes as agricultural groups are increasingly concerned that they will be among the hardest hit in the event that another country decides to retaliate against the U.S. for those tariffs. Yeah. So they're going right to the source. Invading executive time for business. <laughs> I don't know how that works. He's fine with it. Is he? he he's not going to protect his executive He time. pardoned a guy last week because he saw an interview on Fox and Friends. And the lawyer went to the Huffington Post and said, yeah, that was part of our strategy. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> All you got to do TV. is get on Fox and Friends, and now you've got you know an audience with the president. Yeah. It's one way to it's do great. it. It's great. U.S. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, now former... Yeah. On Monday, when he was doing his job, declared you gotta rub that, it in, don't you? Well, I mean, you got to stay on top of these. <laughs> uh, he declared that uh, the nerve agent attack on a former Russian spy in the United Kingdom will trigger a response, adding that clearly Russia was responsible. Prime Minister uh, Theresa May of, Br- of Britain said that on Monday it was highly likely that Russia was behind the attack, and she gave the Kremlin 48 hours to provide an explanation or else. Ooh. We will conclude that this action amounts to an unlawful use of force by the Russian state against the United Kingdom. Wow. Now, these the attack happened at a restaurant against a former Russian double agent, now retired, and his daughter, who both died. Oh, they did or die. Or did they go to the hospital? They were in the hospital, yeah. Really sick. Probably going to end up there. Nerve but I don't know agent, if they're there right. yet. We won't just you know seal their fate as, yeah. as of yet. 21 other people were found contaminated. They put out a, a, a warning yesterday or the day before. It's kind of hard with time yeah. and stuff. But in the last couple of days saying that if you were in this area, you. you need to wash everything you were wearing. If you had eyeglasses, wash them. If they can't be washed, you might need to just dispose of them. 
the table these two were sitting at has been destroyed because it was completely contaminated with whatever the contagion was. Do they spray it on you? How do they you don't get know. nerve agent on somebody? They don't know, but like, they, and they and people are concerned in the public because this was a week ago, <sighs> and right now the government comes out and goes, "Oh, by the way, you may want to wash Dude. your hands." A little concerned by that. Russia's uh, foreign minister has insisted his country is not to blame for this attack, for the attempted murder of the former spy in British soil. He has demanded access to samples of the nerve agent used in the attack before cooperating with any investigation. Wow. Drama. So, attempted murder. He's not dead yet. Okay. Uh, President Trump Monday issued an executive order to block Broadcom's bid to take over Qualcomm due to national security reasons. It would have been a $117 billion technology deal. In his executive order, Trump said that he he has reason to believe that Broadcom, a Singapore-based company, might take action that threatens to impair the national security of the United States. Okay. Just toss that out there. It was going to be one of the biggest deals, and then he just, nope, can't do it. Yep, nope, nope, not going to happen. Ron Hager's going to be here. Yeah. Health evangelist Uh who tells us how to be healthy. Right. I'm going to introduce you to some unhealthy options. Yes. Because that's how we do things. Uh, there was a storm that hit uh, Europe over the weekend called the Beast from the East is what they named. Apparently, oh, is that a storm? They're naming their storms also. Okay, cool. Uh, as we are, well, the Weather Channel's trying yeah. to get us to. They call them like, like Bruce, Hurricane Bruce or something. <laughs> uh, so uh, people go to the store. They try to stock up for the long weekend because, you know, snow, it's going to be tough mm-hmm. to get there. So people start grabbing things off the shelves. Uh, this website in uh, the mirror went to a, rest- uh, a grocery store to see what was left, and they went to the frozen pizza aisle. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, of all the types of frozen pizza, what was left on the shelf? Oh, the vegetarian stuff. They yeah, said for it sure. was just cleaned out except for one type of pizza. Hmm. Yeah, I know what you're going to say, and it's rude. What? Canadian bacon and pineapple. No. Oh, good. It vegetarian. Is, it is pineapple pizza, though. Ah. Not Canadian bacon, but the pineapple pizza specifically was just sitting there untouched. We don't call pineapple it pineapple only? pizza. You call it Hawaiian. They don't. They call it pineapple pizza. That's why it's not selling. So they're like, wow. They, they're like, this is very interesting. And for years, people have debated whether pineapple is an acceptable pizza topping. We've had this discussion on we, the show. Well, we've we already people- proven it is. And yet we've proven it ha- it's not. Gordon Ramsay, <laughs> the, the chef yeah, that what yells does at Gordon people, say? he says it does not belong on pizza. Yeah, Thank but, you, Gordon Ramsay. But Gordon Ramsay's got other problems. He's got manage, what, anger management Anger management, he should listen to our last hour. Apparently he does a show with kids. Oh, wow. And he doesn't yell at them. So people are really kind of disappointed as he's there watching mistakes and just goes, ha ha, and moves on. It's, I bet eh. if he had more Canadian bacon pineapple pizza, he wouldn't yell as much. Well, nobody wants to see him yell at kids. That's the worst part of grocery shopping is when people are yelling at their kids. Uh, so we're closing in on March Madness. Lots of basketball. Those that like basketball, maybe they want a pizza with the basketball. Yeah. Not if it's pineapple. Not, well, not with pineapple, yeah. but you could get it. Uh, pizza Hut. They uh, they're the official pie. Yeah, apparently they uh, they they've introduced pie top sneakers last year. Really? Mm-hmm. Right? They're just they're just red sneakers. They say pizza on them. Okay. Right? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. They're not made out of pizza. No, 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 no. Okay. A pizza but, pie. Th- but this year they're going to make fifty special edition shoes. They're Bluetooth enabled to connect to your phone, so you can just hit a little switch on the little pump, little little yeah. trigger somehow on the shoe, and order a pizza. 
Why? Now that I could get behind. Every time you do it, you'll get a uh, two five ninety nine two topping medium pizzas through the throughout the tournament. It's not clear how the user can choose the toppings. Probably it connects to the app, so you can like do some of those choices on the app. But uh, you can trigger the actual purchase by Wouldn't triggering it, your shoes. It doesn't seem like what you you don't need shoes. You don't need gym shoes. You no. need more like slippers. Because the person that's going to be ordering pizzas all <laughs> the, through this thing will be wearing slippers. They're not going to tie their shoes. That's special, too much effort. Special edition pie tops. Pie tops. Taco Bell is selling Skittles flavored slushies. No. Ooh. What flavor should they do? Should they use to make these slushies? That they, sounds they, they painful. One. No, oh, they're all like. They're, it's it. not like this is the perfect mix. You get Coca Cola and cherry. No, it's like it's a. It's a flavored fruit flavor. I'm guessing slushy. it's going to be a sour skittle. No, nope. skittle. It's strawberry, uh, or as or as people I know call it, strawberry. Strawberry. Who? You wait. You've really heard somebody call it strawberry? Yes, we've had them on the show. My oh. wife had a roommate that that called them strawberries. Former, former BYU Cougar Alema Harrington. This is crazy. He calls my, it strawberry. My wife, her <laughs> mind is going to be blown that somebody else said that too. So the uh, the chain has had Airheads, Pop Rocks, and Starbursts, oh. and they're going with Strawberry Freeze. They're pointing out in this article here um, that uh, this this is the ongoing battle with Seven Eleven, yeah, over these sort of flavored uh, drinks. They they use Skittles, Green Apple, Slurpee at Seven Eleven la- or two years ago, yeah. Yeah. which caused a lot of very Tooth divisive, decay? very divisive. People don't like the Green Apple. There was petitions to get them to switch the green color back to lime. But apparently they all taste the same, right, Terry? Yeah, it's all about smell. <laughs> doesn't no. matter what it tastes oh, like. Oh, yeah. They need to get that lime back in that uh, bag real quick. Dunkin' Donuts. Yeah. A mint. Them. They have a mint brownie donut. Ooh. Allegedly for St. Patrick's now Day. Now that sounds delicious. So you got your glazed donut. Yeah. They put some sort of... Well, it's the glaze on top, and then they dip it in brownie, like crunched up brownies. Uh-huh. Ooh. And then inside, it's all chocolate filling with like a mint flavor. And so you brought yes. some of these today. Did not. Yes. Oh. Just reading about them. Mm. And finally, I don't know about this one. Uh, Cheerios, they've been experimenting with flavors. Why? Why start now? Well, they have like honey nut Cheerios, <laughs> yeah. right? And we read those are like some of the worst. But like, they're delicious. No, but they're the, I, those are the ones you can just pound. I love yeah. that. But then now they have like chocolate Cheerios, mm. which yeah, could be, I don't know. I haven't tasted them. Yeah. They might be interesting. They might be. Uh, cereal, they're, they're putting out peach Cheerios for the spring. Peach flavored Cheerios. I would try that. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't instead of doing that, just give us a coupon to buy peaches, <laughs> and we'll put peaches on top of. So it says the cereal looks just like normal Cheerios, but is made of peach puree concentrate to make it fruity. Yeah, it doesn't have the artificial taste of peach candy. It isn't as sweet either. If you like peaches and cream flavored foods, you'll be a fan. It says. So I am a fan. It's, then. it's pretty on par with classic Cheerios, other mm. than the piles and piles of sugar. Yeah, which mm. you know, if you're gonna eat a breakfast cereal, that's basically what it is, right? It's Cheerios, they've done a great job over the years. At what? At at keeping us, at entertaining us, as keeping us healthier, because they're still a healthier option than most other cereals, like Sugar Smacks. Than Sugar Smacks. Yeah. Well, Cheerios might be a healthy alternative to, like, the McGriddle sandwich for mm. breakfast. 
It's even healthier than that. It's even healthier than the breakfast sausage wrapped in a pancake on a stick that Terry grew up on. I mean, it's... Corn dogs? <laughs> yeah. It's, oh, yeah, yours was a corn dog. I had straight corn dogs. You my didn't kid, do the sausage pancake. My kid goes, oh, I had a corn dog for breakfast. And I go, well, that was a pancake wrapped in a... Oh, it was a corn dog. Yeah. You're raising your kid on Jimmy Dean. Yeah, why not? Yeah. Well, it's an American if original. If it's not Jimmy Dean, it's Paula Dean. Well, it's Paula Dean, but... Paula Dean? That's Jimmy Dean really? dipped in butter. It's Paula Dean. So how long were they married? I don't, I don't think they were married. I don't think there was a marriage there. She just took his name yeah. because she wanted... Yeah. yeah. Well, it's marketable. It's marketable. She, I think she was just you know married someone that was a dean or was mm. born a dean. And then somehow I think someone in the someone put a stick of butter in her crib. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> she learned because that's that like this ain't half bad. It's the main ingredient in most of her her cooking is like we'll start with that stick of butter. <laughs> I love. Please it. promise me you'll do a Paula Dean impression on a daily basis now. <laughs> no, I can't. I can't do it anymore. That's we're going to put Paula Dean to bed. Hey, uh, it's it's uh, up next. It's obviously going to be Dr. Ron Hager, our health evangelist. We've been talking about food and health. We're going to figure out uh, the difference between healthy low-fat versus healthy low-carb. A good doctor will be walking us through it. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer. I'm ready for a miracle. How about you? Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. In studio with us today, Dr. Ron Hager is back. He's an associate professor of exercise sciences in the College of Life Sciences. His expertise is chronic disease prevention, or he we used to call him the death preventer. Now he's the health evangelist. I'm, and I'm glad you mentioned that because I just I just had my stewardship interview every oh, yeah. every year at the university. Faculty have to have a stewardship interview with their department chair to, you know, make sure they're on track. <laughs> and I mentioned that, You're the you know, that that I do this radio show yeah. and that I'd been upgraded. Yeah. I wanted to know I got a promotion. You from, were no longer the death preventer. From, from death preventer to health evangelist. <laughs> so it was, a, it was a bonus for me. That's good. You put that on your Vitae. <laughs> I did. I did. And I put. I, I, got, I changed from the death preventer oh, to the man. health well, evangelist. Well, we're so glad you'd be willing to, <laughs> to let us name you these yeah, things. Yeah. Poor, again, you're trying to be a professional. And we I'm just sit here and keep giving you all these titles. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Slowly pull you but, down. But you had, a, you had a great lead in for today's yeah. topic because, you know, every time I come in, you're always talking about, yeah. you know, the latest, I guess, crazes and fads and yeah. foods. Yummy, delicious gifts from heaven, we call yeah, them. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so I thought there was, there was a, there's a brand new article that came out in JAMA just last month, uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association, um, where the researchers compared the effect on weight loss of a what they called a healthy low-fat versus a healthy low-carbohydrate diet. And this is kind of an important topic right now because there's, well, first of all, there's a lot of people who want to lose weight. Right. You know, we are an overweight and an obese society without question. It's a, it's a major health concern in the 21st century, and it was in the 20th century too. And uh, so there's a lot of strategies out there for weight loss. And one of the most popular is, you know, macronutrient, you know, mostly fat or, or carbohydrate yeah. ma- manipulation. So that's what, like, you know, they, they, they either push no fat, low fat, or low carb, no carb right. diets. Yeah. So I think this is a timely study, uh, you know, to do a, a, a nice comparison, a randomized 
clinical trial, yeah. which is a very powerful study design between these two uh, strategies for weight loss. And I, I want to mention just before we talk about this article and the results that came out of it, uh, there's an article I use in my chronic disease prevention class that uh, is, goes all the way back to 1995. And it, it basically tests, in a clinical setting as well, the effect of overfeeding either uh, all carbohydrate or all fat on uh, weight gain in obese and lean individuals. Huh. And so what, and, and just briefly, what they did in that study, what the, the researchers did in that study is they, they brought subjects in and they, did, they conducted a, a baseline assessment of their metabolic needs, of their energy cost needs. Right. So they, they want to know at, 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 the, at a baseline, what does it take for you, uh, you know, to not lose or gain weight? Right. And they assessed every individual. And then they added to that 50% more calories. So let's just say a person's baseline needs were uh, 1,200 calories a day. And then, so then they would add 600 more calories to that, either entirely as fat or entirely as carbohydrate. And, 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 both, and all subjects got both treatments okay. over time. Yeah. And, and they did this for two weeks. It was a two-week overfeeding, wow. overfeeding period is what they <laughs> called it. And you'll never guess what they found. They found that uh, overconsumption of fat is more likely to be stored as fat than carbohydrate, but just barely. So the point is they're about even. So the point was that that uh, when you overconsume calories, either as fat or as carbohydrate, uh, there was some variability, but not much. But about about seventy to eighty five percent of the excess calories were stored as fat. Holy cow! So I thought I'd just mention that yeah. because that kind of contrasts with what we're talking about today. They were looking at, you know, does fat or carbohydrate make a difference in gaining weight. Here they're looking at, does fat or carbohydrate make a difference in losing weight? In that first study I mentioned, all the way back to 1995, uh, yeah, there was a, fat was more likely to be stored as fat than carbohydrate was to be stored as fat, but not by much. Right. In other words, they were about the same. Interesting. And, wow. And, and in this study, uh, Matt, uh, you know, they, they, they noted uh, a couple of things. Now, one of the things they mentioned is that Previous studies that have looked at effect on weight loss for either low carbohydrate or low fat, uh, both have, have shown, you know, modest results. You know that people who can stick with it, you know, can lose weight. But one of the most interesting things is in these previous studies, they they find that individual weight loss. So let's just say you, know, you got a hundred people in a low fat diet approach. Uh, the 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 range of weight loss is anywhere from about. 25 kilograms lost to about 5 kilograms gained. Oh, wow. Whether you're low-fat or low-carbohydrate. Yeah. So in other words, there's a lot of variability within these studies, suggesting that not everybody responds the same to low-fat or low-carbohydrate. So part of this study, uh, they, they had two other things they looked at, uh, and one was uh, genotype. Genotype is just a word that indicates you know, who you are genetically. Yeah, your genetic makeup. Exactly. And and through gene research, researchers have discovered that, uh, you know, there are genes, you know, that predispose people for heart attacks, for stroke, for cancer, uh, you know, for all kinds of things. Uh, one of the things that has been discovered is that some people may be low-carbohydrate responsive based on their genes. 
Others may be low fat responsive. So they wanted to look for any kind of an interaction. In other words, do low fat responsive people, you know, according to their genotype, uh, fare better in a low fat diet because they respond to that. And same thing with low carbohydrate. And then with insulin, they looked at insulin secretion and uh, in effect, uh, insulin resistance. A person who's insulin resistant is, you know, either on their way to or already type 2 diabetic. And uh, so the idea is if you're insulin resistant, then a, you know, a, lay, a low carbohydrate diet may be more effective right. uh, than, a, than a higher carbohydrate, lower fat diet. So they look for interactions between the diet approach, low fat, low carb, and genotype, and also low fat, low carb, and insulin secretion, and we'll come back to the results in just a, in just a second. But uh, you know, a very well designed study: six hundred and nine adults, mm. about half men, half women, eighteen to fifty years old. They had a BMI between twenty eight and forty, so they ranged from overweight to to very obese. Yeah, uh, the mean uh, BMI, I think, was about uh, thirty three. Uh, so. 30, according to BMI standards, is, is classified as obese. Yeah. Okay, so, so these, were, these were overweight or obese individuals. Now, they, they did this, this intervention. Uh, remember, the intervention is to randomly assign these 609 individuals either a healthy low-fat or healthy low-carbohydrate diet. And once they were randomized, uh, the participants received 22 diet-specific, meaning healthy low-fat, healthy low-carbohydrate, uh, small group sessions over a 12-month period. So this was a 12-month... Wow, that's a great study. Yeah, trial. Uh, pretty impressive. And the study and the, the, the sessions that these people received were from registered dietitians, and, uh, and it involved uh, ways to achieve the, the lowest fat or the lowest carbohydrate intake. And so what they did is they helped the subjects, you know, go, let's say they're in a low-fat group, they helped them go low-fat. And then they, over the course of these sessions, they would ask the participants, can you do this for a year? And if they said, you know, yeah, I mean, no, not really. It's, you're losing yeah, me. <laughs> you're losing me. This is, the, you know, the, the fat is too low. Yeah. And then so they would bring it up. And then they would keep bringing it up until the person said, uh, you know, okay, I can handle this for yeah. a year. And they did the same thing with the carbohydrate. So I thought that was kind of intriguing yeah. too because they allowed the person, the individual subject, to kind of self-regulate. And uh, now, uh, so, so that was kind of a, an interesting thing. Um, and, and, and interestingly, the, uh, you know, 40% of the subjects had the low-fat genotype. Now, some were in the low-fat group and some were in the low-carbohydrate group, and 30% of the subjects had the low-carbohydrate genotype, and those were also, you know, distributed pretty now, much. Is that just taken by a blood test? How do you get the genotype uh, to know if you're a low-fat? It, it, it can either be through uh, spit okay, yeah. or, or through blood work. They, How amazing. Um, and I can't remember exactly, but they probably did it through blood work. Um, so in the healthy low-fat group, um, they— so, so this is low fat. You'd expect carbohydrate to be higher. So their diet composition uh, at the end of the study, and, and by the way, at every checkpoint during that 12 months, it didn't vary that much, uh, but the healthy low fat group was consuming 48% of their calories as carbohydrate tw- only, and 29% as fat. That was considered low fat. Wow, yeah. And then 21% as protein. The healthy low carbohydrate group, obviously they're trying to get their carbohydrate down. They were at... Uh, 
30% carbohydrate and 45% fat. So basically just a reversal yeah. between fat and carbohydrate between the two groups. The, the classes or the sessions were done over 12 months, like I said, uh, about only about 17 people per group. So they kept it relatively small. Uh, they were weekly for three weeks, then every two weeks for two months, then every three weeks until the wow. sixth month, and then monthly thereafter. Yeah. So they kind of, but but one of the important things here, and you know a lot about this, when you're trying to help a person change a behavior, yeah, interaction helps. You oh. know, r- rather than just one time saying, right. "Hey, you got to do it this way," and goodbye, you're on your own. Yeah. So I think that's another important characteristic of this study. You want people to change their behavior, you've got to have interaction. You've got to connect with with people. And you've got to be able to hold them accountable, you know, either weekly or every other week and then every month and then, you know, how, however you want to do it. But, but, one of but the, that helps. Absolutely. And one of the things that stands out to me, um, there you have a genotype. So we always hear that people that are selling the diet, it's just kind of like the one size fits all. Exactly. Everybody just do the low fat. Right. Or everybody just do the low That's carb. That's the answer, right? They always right. present it as the latest research proves, right. here, we have the answer now. But now we, we all know that people are different. But sure. now we really know. You may you have a genotype that's going to work better for you with low fat or low carb. Right. Or probably other variations. Right. And so we that needs to be taken into account from here on out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and that's, I, you know, I mean, you can you can say, well, that's science responsibility to help me figure that out. But, you know, you can also figure it out. You don't yeah. really need to know exactly what your right. genotype is. You just say to yourself, look, I'm an individual, and I'm taking responsibility for myself. I'm going to try some things. I'm going to develop an awareness, and I'm going to see what works and what doesn't for me. Yeah. And then you've got to take responsibility and commit Even you know, Even, to, even when to they're going it. to the, the um, nutritionist and they're interviewing them every few weeks, that's just a chance for all of them to report what they're feeling, what they're noticing, what's happening. And yeah. so this is something we can do on our own by sure. paying attention. Sure. So the emphasis in these sessions was to help subjects, depending on which group they were in, to either maximize you know, the differences in fat and carbohydrate intake between the two groups. They wanted to get the low-fat group as low-fat as they could and the low-carbohydrate group as low-carbohydrate as they could. But at the same time, they were also promoting intake of high-quality foods. So the healthy low-fat group, they focused on reducing edible oils, fatty meats, whole-fat dairy, mm. even nuts. Yeah. The, the healthy-carbohydrate group, they focused on reducing cereals, grains, rice, starchy vegetables, and legumes. Okay? Now, both groups were encouraged— to maximize vegetable intake, minimize sugar intake, refine flours and trans fats, and focus on whole foods that were minimally processed, nutrient-dense, and prepared at home when possible. <laughs> okay, so, yeah. so the idea was, hey, you can, you can have an unhealthy low-fat diet, and you can have a healthy low-fat diet. Right. And you can have an unhealthy low-carbohydrate diet, and you can have a healthy low-carbohydrate diet. So they were trying to maximize the, the healthy nature of the foods they were eating, while reducing fat or or reducing carbohydrate, in the in the low fat group, as I said, about forty three percent had the low fat genotype. Yeah. Okay. So a lot of people who had the low fat genotype were in the low fat group. So you'd think, hey, they'll they'll respond. And about twenty seven percent had the low carbohydrate genotype in th- that were in the low fat group. So you'd think, well, these people aren't going to respond. The low carbohydrate group, about thirty seven percent had the low fat genotype, and about thirty two percent matched their group and had the low-carbohydrate genotype. And interestingly, over the course of the study, total energy intake, once they got these people to the level they could manage, 
total energy intake was not different between the groups at baseline or at any subsequent really? time point. Interesting. But average energy intake reported for both groups was lower at each time point after baseline to the tune of about five to 600 calories a day. Well, that's your, there's your weight loss. Exactly. So, so these people dropped five to six hundred calories a day, whether they were healthy, low fat, or healthy, low carbohydrate. Isn't that and, interesting? And, and the results indicated no significant interaction between type of diet and genotype, interesting, or type of diet yeah. and insulin secretion. That's cool. Yeah. So I, I saw that was an awesome study, and then you you take that in conjunction with some previous research, like the nineteen ninety five study I mentioned, that whether you overconsume fat or carbohydrate. You you store almost all of it. Yeah, it's all it's yeah. all to save your right, hide. Right. So what this is really about, Matt, is figuring out something you can do. The the biggest problem with diets, especially fad diets or or quick fix diets, is that a person cannot maintain it. At most, they can do it, you know, for six, maybe twelve months, and then and then. And then they just kind of come apart. Yeah. This is like, I can't do this anymore. This, this is really why, right? Because right. you're off. Your numbers are off. Your, 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 your genotype's different than what you're trying to the, sure, the, could, your sure, diet. Sure, it could be. The foods aren't the right foods. It's not, the, it's not healthy enough. It's not clean enough. Exactly. So I, I love what this study, you know, I mean, in the end, to me, the take-home message is, is what they tried to do for both groups. More more vegetables, more healthy foods, more whole foods, yeah. reduction of refined and processed foods. And, and, you know, and, and whether you're trying to reduce fat or reduce carbohydrate, as long as you're eating real food, and especially food prepared at home, as soon as you start going out to restaurants and stuff, you might think, oh, yeah, you know, hey, this is heart healthy or this is low fat or this yeah. is low carb or whatever. Uh, y- you just have no idea what kind of other things are going in this restaurant. I, I mean, I'll just tell you a personal story. You know, you go out to a, you know, say a nice restaurant, you get some kind of a dish. Uh, usually it's more than you can eat. So you eat half of it or three quarters of it. And then you say, I need a box. You take it home. Now, when it was on your plate in the restaurant, it it was actually, you know, kind of juicy, kind of, you know, whatever it was. Uh, you know, you put it in a little styrofoam box, you take it home, you put it in your fridge, you say, I'm going to eat this tomorrow. You take it out of the fridge and it's like rock solid. <laughs> you, you know, you can kind of pop it out of the styrofoam container, yeah. almost like an ice cube. Yeah. Why? Congealed. <laughs> yeah, because of all the stuff that's not that great for you. Yeah. You know, that they put in it because it enhances flavor, it enhances palatability, it makes it more savory or whatever. Um, so, you know, the idea here is something that we've talked about before. It's not rocket science. Uh, eat real food. Period. Period. <laughs> And live long and prosper, that's right? That's exactly yeah. right. And know yourself. It, th- that's a key. Yeah. Taking the time to know yourself. One of the most frustrating things for me is that I see is that people in general, you know, uh, to a large extent, have relegated their their health to the healthcare professional. Yeah. You know, it's not my problem. It's yeah. your problem. Fix me. Almost like, you know, your car's not running right and you take right. it to a mechanic. Right. I mean, that's a little different than your own body. That's a lot different. Sure. This is your baby. Well, Dr. Ron, we appreciate you. You did it again. Dr. Ron Hager, again, the health evangelist, helping us to uh, avoid death. (laughs) There you go. Prevent death. Dr. Ron Hager is a uh, professor here, associate professor of exercise sciences in the College of Life Sciences. 
at Brigham Young University. We'll continue the journey. We'll get to two of our healthiest specimens at BYU Broadcasting, uh, our two friends at BYU Sports Nation. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. It's time now to head down to BYU Sports Nation, our good brethren, uh, Spencer and Jerem. Hello, gentlemen. Come closer. Come closer. Come closer. Are you there, guys? Can you hear us, Spencer? Uh, Spencer and Jerem? Oh, I know you're right there. You're right there. We heard you. They're not able to hear us, so we're going to keep... Pushing the buttons. By the way, Jeffrey, that was really, really dramatic music you chose. Well, I, you know, we were talking about superfoods, and I thought that we could go a, into them with the, our superhero music. It was almost, it was almost as if we were about to start the Oscars. Spencer and Jerem, can you hear us yet? I can hear you. Can Doctors. you hear us? Ah, now I can hear you perfectly. Hi. How are you, boys? Good. Great. How are you? Excellent. So uh, here's the deal. I just read something that said one of the quarterbacks uh, from Brigham Young University is leaving. Yep. Take one down, pass it around. Well, they, you know, as we talked about yesterday, had eight in the room, so now it's down to seven once Jaron Hall gets back from his mission. Yeah. And it's interesting, um, he says, uh, Sataki in that same article was saying, Zach Wilson, this true blue freshman, seems to be doing really well, better than he ever thought. Full context. He was added, asked about Zach and answered, so he didn't. He didn't bring go out up. of his way to point Good. out Zach per se. Good, okay. Uh, but Zach, Zach is doing a nice job by all accounts, and uh, has got some swagger and uh, bowed out of high school early so that he could come to BYU, get a head start. So did Stacy Connor, mm. quarterback from Texas, and uh, Zach Wilson is in the mix you to know, be the guy in the future. Zach- I don't know if he's the guy's guy immediately. Yeah, in a new offense. Right out of high school? Yeah, how would that be? Maybe he is. I don't know. But you'd think an experienced guy like Bo Hodge, should he stay healthy, would be uh, a front runner. Tanner Mangum, Joe Critchlow, those would be my top three. Yeah, the old people. The the mature old people. Yeah. Zach, Zach is a talented uh, kid who's, who's uh, figuring it out and Zach, uh, could be the future. Zach reminds me of me as a young man. Uh, ripped, um, tan, smart. Wrong. Smart. Wrong. <laughs> Stuff like that. You're wrong. Seemed kind of rude. So, guys, um, we uh, I just, wrong. Just totally took me, took me back. Um, what your show? I mean, we got a big game tomorrow, and we've got. Um, it seems like a lot of other sports going on on campus where BYU is really dominating. Where they seem to be. You know, moving out in and leading in the country. So, okay, um, is this going to spread? Is 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 basketball going to pick up the game? Do you think? What's what's what do you think? Well, we're going to talk a lot about that today, given uh, the scheduling. So, we learned a lot from the selection committee, what they valued, who they let in and didn't let in based on certain criteria. So, Dave Rose was on the show yesterday and said the BYU needs to schedule differently might need to schedule differently. They've been very um, 
cognizant of the brand and wanting to get good quality home games. Yeah. They may they may have to shy away from that idea to some degree. We will discuss that at length. Today. Oh, interesting. You mean to go on the road and get better? May have to go games. on the road. And, and and exactly what is the NCAA committee looking at when they 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 produce these team sheets and there's yeah. quad one two three four games? What does that mean? We'll explain that in simple cool. terms Good. and what that can mean for BYU scheduling. Oh, I don't think BYU is just looking at it now. I, I think it's full on happening. Yeah. <laughs> if well, here's the thing, Matt. If Gonzaga goes to the Mountain West Conference, yeah. BYU doesn't have to change a thing. Yeah, because then they can win because that tournament. Because it's a one bid league, right? You win the conference tournament and you're in probably. You, right. They wouldn't have to change a thing. Yeah, but you gotta be you gotta improve your competitiveness, don't you? Doesn't no, that come not in the from, one bid league? But no. doesn't that come from playing other? Well, if you put all your eggs in one basket, that you're going to win the conference tournament. Then... Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's true, huh? Well, BYU's gone to the NIT the last three years. Uh, they weren't an at-large bid, independent of Gonzaga. So, yeah, why wouldn't you? Yet BYU feels like it's a program that has enough cachet that if they didn't win the conference tournament, they could put together a strong enough schedule that they would be considered for an at-large position. Well, they will if they change their schedule. Yes. Cur- under the current construct, it hasn't oh, happened no, the last they, three They're seasons. changing it. I guarantee you they're changing it. But what I'm saying is if Gonzaga leaves, they do not have to. You're, you're right, but I still yeah. think that they will change it regardless. Does is it going to be hard? Do teams not want to play uh, BYU? Like it seems like in football, it's hard Correct. to get teams to play you. Yeah, people don't want to come to Provo. Yeah, oh, you can get it, them. Yeah. It just it's it takes some time. Like, and, you, and you have to do just like a one away instead of a back you and do forth. A two for one, or you right. just do the one neutral or the one away. Yeah, it's going to be harder for BYU to get quality. Like it depends on how much they want that quality opponent yeah. based on the value that that team brings in. Like. I don't know, if you want to get a team like Kansas, it might be like, hey, you've got to play two games in our favorite gym in Kansas, and we'll <laughs> yeah, return, we'll return and a play at game. a neutral site in Salt Lake City in the home of the Jazz. Matt, uh. it comes down to this. In football, what's the point for BYU? It's not to get into a New Year's Six. It's not even to win games. It's to be on ESPN to some degree. Yeah, right. In basketball, it is all about the competition a.k.a. get into the NCAA tournament. True. So what changes does BYU make? We'll discuss. Oh, you guys, that's a great thing. What else is on the show? We have Blaine Fowler joining us today. Great hair, great analysis, dual threat (laughs) analyst. He'll discuss both basketball and spring football. What does he think about the quarterback changes? He was a quarterback at BYU. He should know. And a backup at that. Yeah. He knows all about that mentality. And does have great hair. Mm -hmm. We're honest. Also, we have, between the lines, a ping-pong spectacular. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Yes. With some of the notable athletes on campus. How excellent. Peyton Dastrup and... We've got our own March Mayhem tournament going on, okay? This is fun. Yes. And are there prizes to be had? Um, well, that would be against the rules. Yeah, there are the NCAA, NCAA athletes. Oh, so that's why, true. Why yeah. are you trying to get yeah. us in trouble? No, so I mean, I'm we, just saying. Not, I, I this was thinking isn't Arizona. I was thinking for you guys. Would you guys get a prize? Maybe, maybe a we always smoothie. Get a prize. Yeah, the prize is uh, this being able to work at BYU. Yes. Hey, and we're also two on one with junior quarterback Bo Hodge. <gasps> wow. Uh-huh. Bo Hodge. Ask him. Ask him about the. You know. Ask him about the young bucks coming in. Oh, we did. Oh, my heavens. We recorded it, so sorry. We can't all right, that's go all right. Back. Whatever. You guys are pros. I understand. Well, guys, uh, it's going to be a great show, as always. Uh, and, again, they have tournaments. 
We haven't had a ping pong tournament on my show ever. My my eyes shot wide open when they said ping pong tournament. Yeah, I thought you pinched yourself. I could take you in a game of ping pong any day. Wow, you're real confident any place. about that. Oh, yeah. Do you play ping pong? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Do you have a table? Yeah. <gasps> yeah, I do. Really? Yeah. I could still take you. Yeah, I can play two-handed. Can <laughs> you play two-handed? Is that something to brag about? I can play with my left or my right. Like two hands at the same time? I, I, if I wanted, I could have a paddle in each hand. I've had a paddle in each hand, one in my back pocket, and one in my mouth. Some say you were born with a paddle. But, you know, you went to the doctor and that was taken care of. Yeah, they removed it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, paddles, not a big problem. I'll, someday we'll play. How about foosball? Uh, that foosball table's in there in the break room. I've yeah. never seen anybody playing on it. I've, I've seen two people that broke their wrists playing on it. Ooh. So we're not doing it anymore. It was a really bad game. Foosball. Yeah, I'm not very good at foosball. Hey, let's get to our hero story while we're at it. Uh, Derricka Hines, realizing that lives of her relatives were at stake, relied on faith as well as a cell phone and a shirt. When she ran back inside a burning apartment complex in Dayton, Ohio, last Thursday night, the 15-year-old high school student put on the put the cell phone to work as a flashlight and used the shirt as a smoke shield to rescue her one-year-old sister and cousins. Dayton fire investigators concluded the fire was an accident. The cause was electrical. Derricka had been uh, charged with looking out for the little ones because mom was at work. Derricka and her family lost their belongings in the fire, but she is gaining much more these days because of how she responded during and after the emergency. She's a real-life hero. Usually these stories you see, they're on the movies, said one of her high school teachers, Dustin Williams. Derricka was in school the morning after the fire, seemingly not at all flustered and concerned, only that she was wearing the shirt she had on the night of the fire. The clothing on her back was all that was left. A straight-A student wanted desperately to go on the field trip, Williams said. He said when he found out what she had experienced the night before, the attitude stunned him. Derricka didn't seem to be dwelling on her immediate past. She was looking toward the future and what she could learn from an upcoming field trip. So, Derricka Hines, you are the hero of the day. Man, saving your, uh, your little sister and your cousins. How cool is that? And then getting right to school to get straight A's. What a hero that is. And again, all of us folks, everybody has the chance to be a hero. You don't have to do these brave things all the time to be the hero. Sometimes you just need to go get go to school, uh, care a little bit more about others, focus a little bit more on serving and giving instead of taking as much as we all do. That's the show, my friends. Again, we're here every Monday through Friday, 9 to noon Eastern, to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier, happier lives. This is the Matt Townsend Show, but stick with BYU Broadcasting because BYU Sports Nation is up next.